Okay, so here we are on the June 11th. July. Thank you. July 11th. And we're all getting married. Brian keeps saying we're going to get married. You know, not like me to, and him. Like other people or whatever, other ladies. Dave, don't worry. We're not getting married. Okay, Dave. Okay. okay calm down, Dave. We're going to read. I'm going to read to Brian my uh, the story of my traveling in the summer of 2004 out to California um, with uh, Schwammy, and we picked up, well, and Lulu Dog, and we picked up his buddy Joe. Toodles for both of them. Yeah. And I'm going to read it and get Brian, Tears Brian's reaction. Toodles for Delilah. He's in there on one page or two, so here we Delilah? go. Delilah? No, you. Oh. Okay. Don't, don't talk about me, Johnny. Leave it about yourself and... <laughs> All right, don't interrupt me too much. Go ahead. Go go for it, Johnny. I went across the country for the second time in the spring of 2004. When I told my father I was driving out to California, he sighed and threw out his hands and asked, when are you going to start building a life for yourself? Schwam and Delilah the Pitbull, a.k.a. Lulu Dog, arrived in the driveway. The mighty truck Schwammy had was a 1995 F-250, red, extended cab, and with a long bed. The greatest options about the Super Ford were the marker lights on the roof and the manual diesel under the hood. The two of us loaded my backpack, duffel bag, djembe, easel, and $60 worth of drawing paper. The first leg of the journey was the turnpike to Pittsburgh, where we acquired Joe, a friend of Schwam's from Penn State. These guys were animated by Penn State parties, the chicks involved, situations where I wasn't, and I became depressed. Joe brought us to some fantastic place in the Iron City for a traditional Pittsburgh sandwich, which includes coleslaw and fries right in the sandwich. Originally, we were going to the Stonehenge Music Fest at the Henry Boys place, but Joe talked Schwam into attempting to make Red Rocks in Colorado. The dead were on summer tour. Weaving that flag tour, Ishan, Joe said repeatedly. After he got Schwammy all excited about tour, we went over to wherever Joe's dad lived and grabbed a set of knives and a deep fryer. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Joe wanted to take Schwam to some bars, and I waited in the truck with Lulu Dog for a few hours. Those guys got back to the truck at about midnight, and we rolled out of a downtown teeming with nightlife. I sat in the back with Delilah, and Schwam was driving with Joe sitting shotgun. If we drive all night, we'll make red rocks, Ishan, Joe said. I felt relieved about missing Stonehenge because there was nothing but rain in the weekend forecast. I sat in the back. The hours in different states went by. Schwam and Joe discussed tour and what kind of beer to buy. Joe wanted to cook food. He worked in restaurants and also vended on tour a few times. We drove through Oklahoma on the 44. Oh, late, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Oklahoma. Okay. Late in the night, and the wind slapped the truck, causing us to list. Schwammy swung the rig into a rest stop. Looking at the flat, white metal roof of the garish rest stop, I saw a section threaten to break loose as it flapped like a flag. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. This wind had a peculiarity peculiarity I've never seen before. 
Initially, I could believe I was in a wind tunnel, and the next minute the wind halted. There was a black 58 caddy in the parking lot, listing at the, as the truck did. Inside at the register, the skinny transistor radio behind the counter was tuned to an all-news station similar to Philly's KYW 1060 AM. The reporters delivered all the latest information concerning where twisters were touching down, which counties. I was listening to this under fluorescent lights, one that make everything look an ill yellow. Panic came over me and I pleaded to the kid ringing up my snacks at the register. Look, man, I'm from Philadelphia, PA, and I've never been in a tornado before. You'll be all right, he said in a monotone southern drawl. All I wanted to do was get a hotel room, or as Schwam and Joe called it, a hoodie, <laughs> and sleep. The very idea of getting a room was ridiculous to those two. We did pull over every few hours to rest at the rest stop, which was torture. I'd be asleep and Schwammy would wake me up to jump back in for more driving. <sighs> Schwam said to me, You'll thank me when you get to California and you have money, Johnny. Both him and Joe said, Why should you have to pay to sleep? And once we're out west, we can sleep in the national forests for free. I had to forget about Motel 6. Yeah, and then I did. We took the 40, across northern Texas, New Mexico, and into Arizona. Schwam made a left turn at Flagstaff on the 17 South, and we went down to Phoenix. The truck came into the vicinity of Phoenix around 3 a.m., and it was 93 degrees. <sighs> yeah, it was so hot there. Joe said, let's get a hoodie so we can all be freshened up for the shakedown, Ishan. We did get a room and I don't know how much we slept. In the morning, I was up and ready to go, and Joe attempted rousing Schwam up and out of bed. What a joke. Either, oh, it was great. Either he's never seen Schwammy in the morning or he forgot. Ishan, don't you wanna get up and get to the store? We need to go shopping and get into the lot when they open the gate so we can get a good spot on the shakedown. It was 11 a.m and we heard room service vacuuming around us in the adjacent rooms. Joe kept on trying to get our pilot out of bed. Schwammy sat there smoking <laughs> and staring at the TV while Joe asked, don't you want to get a good spot on the shakedown, Ishan? I waited, oh, I loved it, because Joe was pissing me off, you know, so I was just so happy to see Schwammy like, Yeah, off. just pissing him off, it was beautiful. I waited in the truck with Delilah the Pitbull, and Schwam and Joe went into Costco. I thought they'd never be back, and then they returned with everything. Those guys bought the biggest igloo cooler I've ever seen, and food needed to make veggie egg rolls, corn oil for deep frying. Cool. Yeah, it was disgusting. Cases of flat tire ale and fat dog stout. The boys were thrilled, so positive. We're gonna strike it rich on the lot, Ishan, Joe said a number of times. They crunched their numbers and figured on a real profit, especially on the beer. Oh, uh, they didn't uh, <coughs> uh, realize Schwammy could drink their profit? <coughs> well, they were drinking up the profit, the two of them, and then they were giving it away to all the hippie mamas. With
and all the cool dready brothers who were poor on tour and they were like oh here you go brother have a beer have a good no, show shot in, shot in hell shwammy yeah dude no way anyway you're not rich johnny i'm not <laughs> i just played on tv okay june 22nd 2004 the cricket pavilion so i went to my research Sandy found Ega. out what these shows were we arrived at the show a fair amount later than Joe desired, and our spot was at the Shakedown Street's end. I assisted Joe with the prep work, dicing cabbage and cutting carrots into, quote, matchsticks, as Joe instructed. He bought rice paper wraps and showed me how to make veggie rolls. They couldn't be too skinny. Trying to make our veggie rolls plump and seal them was quite a challenge. The wraps Joe bought were delicate, and he was upset when I broke a few. I've never done this before, Joe, I said. When the first wave of customers appeared, I took over handling the money. Joe and Schwam cooked and doled out beer and food. I've never been on a parking lot at a concert, sober and working. Somewhere during the night, I started telling people, we're not fucking around, we're all business. I guess Joe thought thought that the lot rats would think we were all agro-capitalist. Don't go talking to people like that, Johnny, Joe told me. Closer to the end of the night, a drunk and shrooming Joe was yelling to people, We're not fucking around. We're all business. Oh, Jesus. Now, I had to tell Joe, don't yell at people. One has to know this about tour. The venues holding the shows will take your money and let you tailgate and the police patrol the parking area hoping to arrest as many as possible. There aren't any porta potties, so you have to be careful not to get caught urinating along the fence perimeter. Cops patrol the shakedown and any vending is prohibited. Whenever we heard six up, which is hippie for cops, we covered and slid the cooler under Schwam's tailgate. Joe and I concealed our prep workstation until the officers strolled by. The show would let out, and that's when the police really start encouraging people to leave. I wanted to get out and started cleaning up. I used our, I put our used deep frying oil into a storage container. I put the massive igloo cooler into the truck bed. Everything was in the back of the Ford when this cop on foot came upon an impaired Schwam who tried to ignore this already edgy cop. Whose truck is this? Who's driving? The officer demanded to know. I'm the driver, I told the cop. The officer became enraged and screamed in my face. Do you want to go to jail? No, sir, was my <laughs> no. reply. He demanded. Get out of here! I told Schwam and Joe, let's go. I don't want to get arrested. My veteran tour head traveling companions didn't like my paranoia. Joe told me, pigs fuck with those who let them. And if you keep thinking you're going to get arrested, Johnny, you will. Schwam was irritated and told me, relax, man. In between California and Arizona, we slept at an industrial truck stop in the desert. What an ugly place. There were gravel piles and these big metal storage hopper towers. I got out of the truck, grabbed my sleeping bag and pillow. On the dirty gravel, I fell asleep. 
In the morning, I was horrified to find that the used cooking oil had spilled all over everything in the back of the truck. Except you. In the previous nice hates, night's haste, the cabbage and carrots used for our veggie rolls were tossed into the truck bed and not into the cooler. Ew. The cabbage looked awful. Is this true? Yes, and the carrots were rubbery. I thought they were inedible and threw them away. Schwam and Joe were furious. The cabbage was spoiled and the carrots were rubbery, I said. Cabbage will keep for a month without refrigeration, man, Schwamey told me with great disapproval. I didn't know, I'm sorry, I pleaded to no avail. From now on, Johnny, anything you want to throw out, ask either me or Ishan first, Joe barked at me. Don't worry, I'll buy some more food, I said, but that infuriated them even more. You've been brainwashed by Whole Foods. You've been in the suburbs too long. Oh, Jesus. You, town, love, town, you love your refrigerator too much, Schwam said. You have to stop being wasteful, Johnny, okay? Are you going to promise and not throw good food away again? Joe asked me as if I was five. Yes, Joe, was all I could say, and I tried to hide that I was angry at them. Oh, shit. There was a drab diner where we slept and we ate breakfast. A sign on the door told about the large rattlesnakes which live in the area, and I thought to myself, holy shit, I could have been bitten. When I tell you sign with a rattlesnake, like oh, the I biggest, know. biggest rattlesnake, they had a picture of it on the sign, like one of those giant, probably seven foot long type rattlesnakes. Oh God, I'm like, oh. You didn't want Schwammy to get bit by a rattlesnake? Oh dude, they would have went away because it was foot odor. All right. <laughs> All right, here we go. God rest your soul, Schwammy. We love you. Tune up for Schwammy. Okay, so this is June 23rd, 2004. The Coors Amphitheater. The next stop on tour was Chula Vista, California. Chula Vista. Yes. We stopped at a gas station slash convenience store. Inside was a cross-dresser waiting in line. Of and there was. All the guys were checking him out, flashing horny grins. I could see the border two miles away downhill with Mexico beyond. Schwam and Joe talked about spending the day in Mexico, and I said, drop me off, I'll catch up to you guys later. This area was all junkyards and dirt, and Joe asked, Damn, Sean, are you sure we didn't cross the border? Schwam couldn't be motivated in the mornings, of course. Joe, oh, hell no. No. Joe was irritated since we finished all our prep work and he wanted, quote, a perfect spot on the shakedown. Schwam didn't think it mattered too much, which I found hilarious. Hold on. Yeah, Stop. that's okay. What? Explain to people what shakedown is. Oh, you're right. I didn't, did I? Okay, no, so the yeah, shakedown is, it's where everybody, all the vendors are. You walk down this one, you know, aisle in the parking lot and all the vendors are people selling food and beers and drugs. waters, drugs. Grateful Dead and Fish. Um, yeah. Any of those like hippie kind of bands, jam, band, jam band. bands are gonna have a shakedown street. Comes from the Grateful Dead song Shakedown Street. It's where all the vendors congregate. Um, and it's a marketplace. So it's called the Shakedown. Thank you, that's Brian. Where you, that's where you sold your wares. Yeah, that's where we were selling our drinks How much and our money food. Did you make? I don't know. Uh, you don't anyway, know I don't you know. Don't care. I didn't care, they didn't dude. Care. It was on. It was all on them. It was all on them. I was like, whatever, dude. You guys, that's on you guys. I, you know, I didn't even get, get, get out of here. Yeah, man. I, I just helped them. I didn't care. 
At Chula Vista, we showed up late and got directed into the spillover lot. Joe was so disappointed and I was loving it. He was real bossy and rubbed me the wrong way since Pittsburgh. Oh, that's a long way. Oh yeah, dude, right off the bat. I was, a, I was a little jealous that I couldn't be involved in their lively conversations. Not drinking on tour and watching the turbulent party happen all around me was unsettling. People were drinking. Filthy kids had a cornucopia of farmies and club drugs. E Molly, they hollered. Cornucopia. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, there were nitrous tanks hissing a sinister chorus. The high-quality herb could be smelled everywhere. People were loony and sweaty from the mushrooms. Hand drummers competed with stereos. Hippies screamed and sang. These nights on the parking lots were accentuated by beer bottles smashing on asphalt. A man laughed at his intoxicating wife, intoxicated wife stumbling from man to man. She was barely able to walk or talk and she slurred. Do you want to fuck me? She was bewildered when I said, no, absolutely sad. Somehow we were allowed to move the truck over to the main lot at Chula Vista. Joe sent me to the front door of the venue supplied with hot veggie egg rolls. I could hear the dead clearly and some dude was buying our now famous veggie egg rolls. He was commenting on how great the band was sounding and I told him, they sound like a cover band in a bar. <gasps> they don't sound the same. Oh, Jesus. This man looked as if he wanted to cry. Pepsi was there giving out samples, and this upset a lot of kids. Jerry's on stage with a man was something I heard at every show. As one believe, who believes in ghosts, I couldn't deny that possibility. Bob Weir in a Rolling Stone interview said, quote, I see Jerry out of the corner of my eye on stage sometimes and hear his laughter, end quote. I listened to The Grateful Dead in high school only because the pot dealers blasted their bootleg tapes. They became my soundtrack. From 1994 until 2001, virtually all I listened to was The Dead. The four of us, don't forget Lulu Dog, Sailed across the USA, listening to the dead with a sprinkling of Bob Marley the whole way. I tried to get some different tunes on the stereo. Nope. But Joe wasn't having it. No. The dead and lack of sleep had combined to make me feel as if I was tripping. At the end of the Chula Vista show, the cops had their sirens and lights going. The noise was overwhelming for Delilah the pit bull. She was quaking in terror under the truck, and I said, Schwam. Give me your key so I can put Delilah in the truck. Why do you want to put her in the truck? He asked with suspicion. Look at her. She's terrified, I exclaimed. She's fine, man. She just wants to go home, He Schwann. said. By this point, the police car stopped right near the truck, and sweet Lulu dog was trying to break free of the bungee strap which held her to the tow hitch. Oh, Jesus. Give me the keys. I'm putting the dog in the truck, I demanded. Schwam handed me the keys and I got Delilah into the back seat. She shook and shivered and I soothed her like a mother does with an infant. I shut down our veggie roll slash beer operation. It seemed like the end of days was upon us. The parking lot was littered, loud, a wholesale apocalypse. 
I poured some of the rancid cooking oil from the deep fryer, you can only use it twice, into a trash can. Joe was drunk and tripping. Flirting with some hippie mamas, I asked him, yo, what should I do with our leftovers? He ignored me. I poured the remaining oil into some shrubbery on this little island in the lot. We are no longer the knights that say knee. Yeah. The fucking oil ran out of the bottom of the trash can. <sighs> the waste oil spilled from the island onto the parking lot. A cop saw all this oozing mess and it was too much for him to take. Get out of here now, he screamed at us. We spent that night in a state park right on the Pacific Ocean. Schwam and Joe networked on the lot and found out a bunch of kids on tour were camping there. The campground was loud due to the revelers from the tour. I was asleep when a drunk and shrooman Joe awoke me. Johnny, where's the leftover food from tonight? There's hungry people here. He was shocked to hear me say I threw it out. Go fuck yourself, Joe. Joe was livid and his expression hardened into granite. I thought we talked about this, Johnny. You said you wouldn't throw anything away without checking with me or Ishan first, remember? He was kneeling over me, speaking to me like a goddamn five-year-old again. We're supposed to feed people, and we can't do that if you keep throwing all the food away. You're inconsiderate. What am I gonna tell all the hungry people? Go fuck yourself. I looked at Joe. <laughs> I know I said I'd never throw any more food away, but this time I really mean it. Joe, I'm really sorry, but those veggie egg rolls taste terrible when they're cold. I just wanted us to get the hell out of there tonight so we wouldn't get arrested. I asked you about the extra food and you were too busy talking, so I tossed them. You're too them. busy, hi, bruh. Joe wouldn't let up and made me swear not to waste food ever again. Again, again. Someone has to be ambitious to make me reach that point where I'm ready to fight, and Joe got me there. A quick way to do this is to awake me like he did. I sat upright in my sleeping bag and brought back a fist ready to strike him. I said, don't fuck with me. He left me alone after that. Oh yeah, dude, I, I, I yeah. He got me to that Johnny point. doesn't get angry. Uh, well, when you wake, like I said, when you wake me up, when somebody wakes me up in the middle of the night, yeah, um, that pisses are me off. Are we on podcast? We are. We're recording this. Oh. Yeah, we're recording. Oh, then Johnny means it. Yeah. Okay. So he left me alone after that. I was awakened by a park ranger in the morning. He grew impatient trying to raise Schwammy from under the waves oh, of Jesus. hungover slumber, oh, a near impossible task. Uh, yeah, impossible. I awoke him. Whose truck is this? You guys are unregistered, he said. Officer, uh, when we came in last night, the front gate was closed for the night, so we figured we'd just pay in the morning, Schwam said. The ranger softened a little and said, well, lucky for you guys, the campers who registered the spot canceled at the last minute. Yeah. The park ranger told us about the numerous noise complaints the night before. From you? From all of us, everybody on dead tour. Oh. Make sure you pay before you leave, he said before he left. Schwam drove out and onto Route 1 without paying. <laughs> and I said, they're going to call the cops on us. Again, the guys told me, don't be paranoid. All right, so let's take a break for five minutes here. June 24th, 
2004, Verizon Wireless Amphitheater, and June 26, 2004, Shoreline Mountain View. Joe had an excellent sense of humor, but I couldn't help but feel a resentment towards him. Every time we went to eat somewhere, he was trying to get a free side substitution or a discount something. The waitress would always have to ask the manager and Joe would hold up our orders. I thought he ought to know better since the guy spent time working in restaurants. Excuse me, in restaurants. In Denny's one morning, Joe suggested that Schwam get a cap for the back of the truck. He was making jokes about us looking like the Beverly Hillbillies. We had the bed of the mighty Ford covered with a tarp, looking out of place in affluent Southern California. The shows between Chula Vista and Sacramento weren't too noteworthy. These late afternoons and evenings passed as we vended at warp speed. These evenings ended the same as the others, with me cleaning up and telling law enforcement, I'm driving, since those two obviously couldn't. The lots were littered and trashed dreadlocks youth, youth screamed for rides. Lots of people wanted water, so we added it to our immense cooler. Water. Water, here in Philly. I kept worrying about the cops. Don't look at them, Joe instructed me. If you look at them, they'll come over here. Oh, Jesus. I stopped looking at the police and felt better. I convinced Joe to forget deep frying, which was simple. The three of us had oil-covered clothes. Joe decided on vegetarian wraps, and so we picked up tortillas, shredded cheese, and traded cabbage for lettuce. That corn oil we used hurt my mouth. I don't know why. The Heads on Tour loved us and our wraps. We brought a slice of the East Coast loud and proud and in your face along with us. The rumor on the lot at Irvine was the same at Phoenix, as Phoenix. The cops are real assholes and you don't want to get locked up here. Every show we left had me wondering whether I'd roll over some broken glass and get a flat. We were going through the gate and some guys needed a ride. I wanted to keep driving, but Schwam, in a raised and slurring voice, cried out, No one can slip on a tour, man. The abundant drunkenness and noise of the lot were too much. Schwam and I wanted to get to the Rainbow Gathering. Joe was again disappointed that Schwam wasn't interested in, quote, making money. How could they? With all the beer they drank and gave away to pretty hippie mamas who smiled so perfect, Joe said multiple times, Ishan, this is the waving that flag tour for a reason, and rambled on about standing up to, at the time, President Bush and all this silliness regarding tour. Joe questioned me about why I wasn't interested. I can't deal with these tripped out hippies anymore, I told him. He looked at me like he was stabbed through the heart. Joe's eyes grew wide, and to me, he looked sickly. With an offended gasp of incredulity, he asked. Incredulity? Yeah, incredulity. Jesus, Johnny. Yeah, yeah you got to pull out the good words. Big word, yeah, big word. He yelled, you're going to the gathering and you're sick of trip, sick of trip, thou hippies? Who do you think is at the gathering, Johnny? 
At this point, he was frightening me, and not only because of what he was yelling. You better not go to the gathering because that's all there is there. Joe was preaching ominous warnings, and simultaneously, Schwammy was telling me, don't listen to him, Johnny. They're two separate things, totally different. Joe kept insisting, Johnny, you seriously shouldn't go to the gathering if you don't want to be around a bunch of tripped out hippies. Now I was imagining the rainbow gathering as this massive parking lot in the national forest, except with camping allowed and porta potties to use. Joe was in a frenzy now and went back to the significance of quote, waving that flag tour when Schwam stated, fuck tour. <laughs> Joe was aghast at what he heard. I smiled one titanic smile. Awesome. Oh yeah. 27th of June, 2004, the, the, uh, the sleep train amphitheater. Oh, you guys are still in yeah, the this same is, car? Yeah, in the truck. Oh, Jesus. Uh, we've ended our fifth and final show. This venue was built for the Grateful Dead, Joe told me. Quote, from the sky, it looks like a steal your face, dude. I was so glad that this was the last show we'd be at. Initially, the overall feeling was nice. This was a homecoming for the dead, and the police presence was lighter. The ones walking around seemed less hard. Some yuppie in his late 30s or early 40s was trying to get free food and beer. I looked at him in his leather slip-ons, polo shirt, khaki shorts, and said, Dude, I know you've got a full-time job and probably make good money. Only the kids on tour get free food and beers. He was a bit embarrassed and laughed pulled out an expensive leather wallet full of cash. All right, all right, all is right, his reply. All right, all right, all right. At the peak of the night, some intoxicated Iggy Pop lookalike staggered on by our setup. He wanted free beer and food. Schwam and Joe hooked him up, and he fell into one of our fold-out blue chairs. He ate the food, drank the beer, and then wanted another beer. After a second beer, Naturally, this drunk wanted a third. We all said no. The three of us were busy with our onslaught of customers. This crowd was large and hungry. I was chopping veggies and looked over to see Iggy reaching into the cooler. You've got to go, I told him. And of course, Iggy Pop's twin ignored me. Putting down the knife and going over to him, I said, you've had enough. He was mumbling incoherently as I wrapped my left hand around his left wrist. I put more pressure into my grip as Iggy persisted on for another beer. I had my right hand on the beer he needed, my left hand on his left wrist, and used a little too much force. Drunkard Pop fell backwards, cutting his hand on glass shards. He pushed me, Iggy protested to our line of customers. They saw him fall and saw his bloody hand. Unfortunately, they didn't see our previous kindness or his want to take advantage. The hippies looked at me with suspicion. I felt as if I were on trial. I addressed the people in line, quote, we gave him free beer and food and I caught him trying to steal beer. He's ungrateful and needs to leave. The people listening to me looked at Iggy now, who looked like a disappointed child. He vanished. The parking lot scene at this show had a wonderful, wonderful tranquility 
and towards the end of the night, the crowd was louder and bellicosity was in the air. Bellicosity. Yeah, I thought you'd like that one. I like that one. Yeah, it's a good one. One lot rat aggressively spare changed me twice. Forget good vibes and all that. I had reached my limit. With the lack of sleep and a sensation I was cornered and threatened, I told this jerk-off scumball, don't fuck with me. I haven't slept well in days. He backed away. I saw this group of guys at every show we vended selling Molly. I had heard of Molly before, and I finally wanted to know. You know, I seen you guys at every show selling Molly. What the fuck is Molly? I asked them. They grew excited and came over to me. Molly is pure MDMA, man. One of them informed me. We got E2, man, another said. Yeah, I remember ecstasy, but I don't do that shit anymore. Thanks for the information, I said. A group of people were holding a candlelight vigil for a buddy who died on tour. They had red votive candles and poster boards complete with his picture and poetry written underneath. Everyone expressed condolences, including me. The police asked them to extinguish the candles due to the wildfire danger. They refused to put out the candles. Supposedly, the mourners told the police, we'll fight to the death. When law enforcement attempted to blow out the candles, it seemed that every cop in the state arrived. A rumble broke out with deadheads fighting cops. We were tailgating right near the entrance and there were cops on foot, horseback, paddy wagons, cars, and SUVs, only to be followed by news vans and ambulances. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, it was wild. This night ended similar to the rest, me getting us cleaned up and out of the venue before the cops could get us. After Sacramento, with Schwammy and Lulu Dog passed out in the back, Joe and I looked for a national forest to camp in. We were late into the night. With the Grateful Dead on the stereo and a highway hypnosis, my mind was in a glump. The periphery of my vision moved like flowers on a blustery day. The divider lines of the road flashed. Joe asked for my assistance in helping him find the forest and said something about turning around and going back and la la la. Joe, you just tell me where to drive. I can't really understand anything else right now. This was my tired response. I didn't know how much more gear shifting I could do. Gear shifting. I can't drive much longer, Joe, I said with effort. He glared at me and opened his mouth to say, what do you mean? You're driving. You gotta pull it together. This is tour. We have to do this. He scolded me like a bad child. Joe added something about, quote, how I was on other tours. And I said, I've never been on tour. This confession electrified Joe, who asked, does Yishan know this? <laughs> what an inconvenience. The dawn came and the truck was on a rural highway, the one we turned around to reach. We had a CHP patrol car behind us. Uh -oh. I assured Joe it was cool, and then the cherries and blueberries went ablaze. Cherries and blueberries, baby. <clears throat> yeah. Guess who's sober? Quote. Johnny. Yeah. Quote. Don't tell him we're going to the gathering, dude, Joe said in a quivering voice as I slowed the truck down to a stop. 
I won't, Joe, I said, envisioning a thorough strip search of the vehicle and the Ooh. occupants. Yeah. I had Schwammy and others warn me even before I left Pennsylvania not to ever tell cops I was going to a rainbow gathering. I knew this. Nobody had to tell me. The statey was taking forever to come up to the truck, and I had my license ready for him. Joe was unsettled, warning me. Seriously, Johnny, don't tell him we're going to the gathering. And I told him, I'm not that dumb, Joe. He finally did get to the driver's side window, intimidating in those Ray-Bans and the blonde crew cut. I gave the cop my ID, which he took back to the car. The CHP car sat behind us, and every so often, I'd look into the rearview mirror, wanting the cop to return. What's taking so long, I wanted to know. Finally, the officer was walking back to the truck. He handed me my license and he asked, do you know why I stopped you? You were crossing the yellow line in an erratic manner. I figured we were screwed and I was honest with the man. Officer, I've been driving all night and I'm so tired. We're looking for a certain campground around here. In fact, it should be right up this road here. Joe had the map out and he was corroborating my story. I passed the map on over to the officer. It was a sportsman's map and he must have thought we were going to go hunting and fishing, his obvious passions. He was the nicest guy ever, recommending where to camp, fish, and hunt. If you want to go and ride dirt bikes or four-wheelers, I can tell you how to get there too, he told us in the early sun. Joe was brilliant, telling him some stories of camping and whatnot saying just what enough not? yeah Schwam and lulu dog didn't move or make a sound oh, and the God. yeah exactly and the cop said have a nice day joe and i were so relieved and we high-fived over our escape from a potential bad situation yeehaw johnny that pig thought we was one of the good old boys <laughs> joe and i nodded yes and laughed the two of us were smiling and flushed with a win we headed to the Modoc National Forest in Alturas, located in Northeast California for the Nationals gathering. Nationals mean all these tribes of like-minded people scattered all over the country come together twice a year. There are regional gatherings, but they're really small. I can't breathe. All right. Okay, lots of these people's philosophy comes from the Native American teachings and traditions. The goal is to heal the earth, live closer to our agrarian forefathers and pray for world peace the rainbow is to signify the races of the earth standing as one family a word used a lot at the gathering the majority of individuals who came to the rainbow gathering eschewed modern material culture the ideal of the rainbow family is living in a home you've built yourself off the grid and growing your own food I wanted to go to one of these things for several years now. I'd finally made it, almost. This part of California had the impossibly large ponderosa pines, which are protected by federal law from chainsaws. Everywhere there were stands, stands of trees destroyed by invasive bark beetles from China. Invasive bark beetles. As the trucks sailed us in onto Modoc, we pass a broken down motor home or a pathetic car, mainly with 20-somethings headed for the gathering. Of course, Schwammy was a good Samaritan and stopped to offer assistance. 
Somewhere at an isolated town intersection, a petite, dready girl in a flowing dress was hitching for a ride. At the intersection, Schwam yelled out to her, I'd give you a ride, sister, but I don't have the room. She smiled and said, No worries, bro. <laughs> I was disappointed her petite self couldn't fit. Oh, yeah, she was adorable. You would have liked her. Once inside Modoc, we passed more standing dead trees turning onto a dirt road. The parking was throughout the trees, cars lumped with 70 school buses fashioned into motorhomes. There were pickup trucks dented and diseased and Subarus plastered with bumper stickers such as, Daddy, what were forests like? Some apparently weren't going on the hike to attend nationals. These characters drank around campfires and blasted music. My book bag was on my back, my djembe and sleeping bag were under my arm, and I carried my Walmart tent in my left hand that I bought in Missouri. Missouri. Yeah, oh my God. Missouri. Yeah. At the visceral perimeter of the gathering where everyone began to park in the dirt was a banner up across the dirt road which read, Welcome Home. Schwam, Lulu Dog, Joe, and I received hugs from folks saying, Welcome Home. Welcome home, baby. The various clusters of campers had some cause, religion, or theme under which they set up camp and or a kitchen. The first campers we passed were Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. I heard, you Hare know, George Krishna. Harrison's Hallelujah today, and I thought of them. Oh, Hare Krishna. Yeah, yeah. They sat in a circle singing over an acoustic guitar. Hare Hare Krishna, 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 Krishna. Fuck you, George Harrison. Hare, Hare Rama, 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 Rama. Ad infinitum. These Krishna had several different groups camped throughout the gathering, and they all had white tents. They all sang their Hare Krishna chant Hare Krishna. for stability and joy. They certainly had the joy. All the, Krishna, Krishna. all the Krishna devotees offered out Krishna cookies, which Swam said, quote, don't eat. Don't eat them. I ate them because oh, I was hungry. Johnny. I was hungry. Johnny. And they tasted the like coconut. Swammy says don't eat them. I know, you're them. right, I shouldn't, but I ate them anyway. That's why Johnny can't get off the road now. Yeah, right. We walked past a camp of devout Christians displaying handmade wooden signs with scripture. They washed people's feet. In fact, they had a small line waiting, and I was creeped out. Yeah, totally. I saw Palestinians and Jews camped next to each other. There was a group of people with a kitchen serving mainly sprouts at mealtimes. Ew. I passed all these and other groups, and now sun was down at about half an hour. This is what was called Dark 30 by the hippies, and I couldn't walk anymore. I wanted to set up my tent and crash. Where should I sleep, Schwam? I pleaded. You'll find people you want to camp with, man. Ew. Volunteer at their kitchen and they'll feed you. It's all good, Schwam told me. Oh, Jesus. Suddenly, as we rounded the bend, a chorus of voices singing Bob Marley's redemption song could be heard. The two of us walked up to the front of their camp to absorb the feeling. I knew where to camp. 
This is it, I said. Schwam helped me set up my tent and disappeared. I lay in my tent freezing cold, thinking California would be warm in the summertime. Nope. I had several long sleeve collared shirts on, my jeans over my sweatpants, and my raincoat on top of it all. After adding all the layers of clothing, I still shivered. The hand drums from the camp next to me bounced through the forest, accompanied with screams of delight. I slept for 14 hours, the first night of real sleep since leaving the east. I chatted with the guy standing outside of his tent next to mine about last night's cold. Yeah, some snow fell in different places, he said. I expressed my amazement and disbelief. Yeah, but it's summer. How could that happen? I asked. Really? Mm -hmm. He looked at me and said, we are 8,000 feet above sea level. I felt relieved knowing I wouldn't be in a vehicle for a while. I set up my, I'd set up my tent with the warriors of the living light, the same folks involved with Earth First. I witnessed those redwood spikers effortlessly, effortlessly climbing trees barefoot in order to adjust their banner and fix the tarps, which served as their kitchen roof. I saw these bearded guys standing and talking about cooking. Good morning. Can I help out with anything? I wanted to know. Yes. The kitchen needs wood, they told me. I gathered kindling and then middle and large sized pieces of wood. Some activist bitch yelled at me. The sticks you're breaking off the trees could be used by animals. Oh, Stop taking away from the animals that live here. Oh, Jesus. There was a man that overheard her ridiculous tirade and said this to me. Listen, us being here is the best thing for this forest because we're consuming all this wildfire fuel. Yes. I ought to know because I'm a firefighter. My father was a firefighter. And so were my grandfather and his father, too. Don't listen to her. The giant pot of oatmeal was cooked, so a conch was blown to signify the meal time. A sizable line formed, with mamas and children first. I don't see any bowls, plates, or utensils, I said to the guy serving the oatmeal with a massive wooden spoon. He studied me with disbelief and stated, you have to get something. Yeah, I was looking for like plastic forks and knives. Oh, God. Dude, just, yeah, they, the, they didn't understand me. All right. So I had my stainless steel coffee mug attached to my belt, and I had it filled with oatmeal that contained onions, raisins, and Indian seasoning. I never had oatmeal with onions or coriander before. I couldn't drink all my oatmeal, so I grabbed a stick off the ground. I whittled me a real shallow knife spoon using the pocket knife Schwammy gave me. My face needed a wiping and I asked, yo, does anybody have any paper towels or napkins? I need to wipe my face. My question aroused a feeling of disgust and horror among the hippies. One of them could see I'd never been here before. Yeah. And he told me in a low voice, this is rainbow. We don't believe in disposable you anything. Rain you rainbow too. Try to carry a handkerchief with you. I volunteered to help clean up. There was a three-part process when washing dishes in order to save water. The first Tupperware bin was a pre-wash and soap with a heavy brush for knocking off the big stuff. The second bin was a soapy water and a rag where all the pots and pans were scrubbed clean. The third bin held water to rinse the soap from the cookware. Somehow, I muddled up the order and this monk-like hippie reminded me of the order. 
I remarked with my dry sense of humor. Yeah, if I do it again, you're gonna punch me in the mouth, right? You're a rainbow too. He thought I was serious, and his eyes chock full of concern, he remarked. Oh no, I would never want to hurt you, brother. I gotta stand up. All right, go ahead. Keep, keep talking. After my wood running, breakfast, and cleaning up, my head was pounding, and that's because I was a caffeine addict going through withdrawal. When I don't have coffee, tea, or something with caffeine by 10 a.m., I'm useless. Hey, where can I get some coffee, I asked. Wawa. Yeah. No, there wasn't a Wawa there. They motioned to the main dirt road and said, follow the road to the next right trail, take it up and over, and the second dude said, Montana Mud's over there. Montana Mud? Yeah. I wondered what else was happening and who else was here. Jesus. Just Who's about... Montana Mud? Oh, you'll hear. Just about everyone looked biblical. The men wore long beards, sandals, and tunics. The women had these full head wraps to conceal their dreads, earthy jewelry made of hemp rope, beads, and stones. They wore long, loose dresses. As I ventured out from warrior's camp, I said, hey, and hello, to those I passed, without much response. I looked like what I was, Johnny Suburbia, all fresh cut and wearing shiny, unscratched merrells. The hippies must have thought I was a fed. I remembered what Terrence from Whole Foods told me about these uh, rainbow gatherings. You a rainbow too? Yeah. He said, the first three gatherings I was at, I had my dreads. Everybody puffed down, puffed me down, hugged me, called me brother. I went to two gatherings after that, and dude, they weren't the same. He cut his dreads. It's like as if you don't have dreads, you're not. You don't have dreads, you're not part of the family. As I walked along past the different camps, I wondered where the hell Schwam was. He made me mad for just vanishing, doing what Big Tommy calls the shady roll. I felt tossed aside, and I thought, I'm not a child. Schwammy needs a break from me, and I laughed. I followed their directions and found the 21st century hobos. These are the train hopper punk rockers, which are the other dominant stripe of the rainbow. Supposedly, they were called, quote, drainbows by the hippies because of their rainbow. reluctance to work. The Montana Mud Kitchen Tramps had a boisterous chick dealing out the coffee, which was high test all right. They shoveled Folgers or Maxwell House instant into the pot. She and her much quieter cohorts screamed, Mud! Whenever another pot was ready, which was about twice an hour. Twice an hour? Oh yeah, they just kept making coffee. It was insane. They were a bunch of crestfallen kids in black out front of this caffeine oasis. I sat with them. They smoked a lot of cigarettes, and I can't remember what we talked about. What's your name? I'm John. I asked this tiny, pale, young dumpster diver. <laughs> Lost boy, he replied, and I believed him. They were too quiet, similar to their dreadlocked brothers and sisters. Maybe they thought I was a fed also. I had a lot of uneasy conversation about, quote, agents of Babylon. Agents of Babylon. Every morning started with Montana mud, and then I was hanging out there some afternoons, too. They were up at sunrise like me, and my teeth was stained just like theirs from the mud. I mistakenly referred to their mud as coffee. Almost insulted, yet smiling, they corrected me. We don't serve coffee. We serve mud! 
Some kids were drumming there one late morning and I drew them. People hung out there at the mud kitchen, a coffee shop for society's fringe. One morning, a man- I like that, yeah. society's fringe. Yeah. One morning, a man told us, told a few of us how to kill a deer with a small knife. Oh, it'd be so easy, he said, small knife in hand. His graying hair was in Pocahontas braids, and the only clothing he wore was a pair of orange nylon running shorts. What? Yeah. Right across the trail and down from Montana Mud was a place someone had set up a number of solar-powered showers. Montana Mud. Everyone was nude and carousing under the tempting warm water. The guys and girls soaked while smiling at each other, and children had fun. My mud friends and I shared our mutual appreciation for the person or persons dedicated enough to set up a community shower system isolated in the wilderness. Go over and take a shower, and the guy who set it up is going to be staring at you. That's the reason that it's there, so he can stare at it and hit on the guys. Someone said this, and I knew I was definitely not going over. I'm not going to wow. I never showered while at the gathering. All right, we'll just haul it there for tonight. I know, you got it. Page nine. We're on page nine. Some nameless day, a piano was hauled into Warrior's camp on a cart which had these knobby tires. <laughs> they parked it under a tarp, and we'd be treated to some piano playing. This young guy who resembled the actor Rutger Hauer was playing classical pieces on this piano and creating a somber mood. He could play. Who's Rutger Howard? He's a act like he was in action movies in the 80s he played like one of the evil guys those piercing blue eyes chiseled face like kind of look like Charles big Bronson. tommy like one of big tommy's relatives okay okay i thought his talent and concentration had the potential to destroy the piano <laughs> there were also a few vagabonds who played dixieland but the best was a portly girl who wore dark rectangular glasses I watched the mood change with the music, which was fun. I had become friendlier with my kitchen, although I still felt like an outsider. Speaking to some older drifter at the soup kitchen one day, I said, I feel like lots of people are blowing me off or something. He looked at me and he said, this is your first gathering and everyone knows it. You're not even here, you're just watching. If you come again, you'll see what I mean. These West Coasters were impressed when I said, I drove all the way from Philadelphia for this. One of them asked me, Philadelphia, Mississippi? <laughs> I said, no, no, the original. Never even been to Mississippi. All my scruffy kitchen buddies hailed from Northern Cali, Oregon, or Washington. I scrubbed some burnt black beans off the bottom of a massive cooking pot. Oh, Joe, bless you, said the Zelda-looking fellow who called out for a volunteer. This six-year-old boy said to me as I worked one day, Jaw is my father. Jaw is the father of the world. I'm not an atheist, but I told the boy with young dreads, John Cullen is my father. He went over and whispered to his mother. She eyed me with concern as she spoke to her son in a hushed and firm tone. Every so often, someone would yell, Six up! 
which means law enforcement are coming. Meanwhile, it was you walking down the thing all the time. Yeah, right. <laughs> and a number of hippies ran to hide, streaming off in all directions. Don't take my picture. The forest rangers either came on foot or in Chevy Suburbans or on horseback. Six up, giddy up! I saw smiles of amusement on the cops' faces as they walked down the main dirt road, which they mainly stayed on. A few times they headed up into where I camped and were offered some food, which they always turned down. One day, a lady ranger behind the wheel of a Suburban was broadcasting the warning, Six up! As no, she came, fuck, I swear man. to God, <laughs> as she came by and she was laughing. Of course, the hippies found nothing humorous about the police. See, that's why the fucking... <laughs> yeah, dude, it was funny. fucking funny. It was. I said hello to the law just the same as I did the hippies and the punk tramps. The cops were quiet, too. I walked to the other end of Nationals, and there were similar cars, trucks, buses, vehicles desperate to visit a body shop. Some of those in this parking area didn't look like they made it onto the gathering either because, oh, no, I'm sorry. Some of those people in the parking area didn't look like they made it into the gathering either because they were drunk and tending campfires, just like where we parked on the other side. I struck up a conversation with a guy sporting red dreads and combat boots. Oh, Jesus. Is this he was, a camp? This was, he told me all about it. Hold on, you're going to hear all about it. He was like a tour guide, welcome me to my first rainbow. Standing in front of a cyclone fence, he motioned to the fence and beyond. You see over there? That's a camp. You can use money there. He said this like it was unbelievable. Money wasn't allowed in the gathering, only trading. The A in a camp stands for alcohol. Not only were they spending cash, they were drinking and fighting habits not welcome among the rainbow family i told my tour guide i'm not going over there <laughs> he laughed and told me a significant tale in new mexico several years ago the forest rangers were planning to issue a ban on fires which would have ended the gathering some kitchens cook using solar power but most use wood everybody chanted and did a rain dance from over a ridge, a storm came, and it poured rain on us. The rangers couldn't believe what they saw. Before they all left, they said, if you guys can do that, you can have your gathering. I mean, they just couldn't believe what they saw. Where all the dirt paths converged and splintered off, I found the trade circle where people traded goods like clothing, glassware, jars of nuggets, and chocolate. I wanted chocolate and had nothing to trade. I ran into Schwam one time and got his keys. I hoped some hippie might want a book or two and hiked back to the truck. I tried trading them for chocolate. Nobody was even remotely interested and I felt foolish. Someone erected a large bulletin board teeming with all kinds of information. How to avoid police intimidation and harassment, friends looking for friends, and everything else. I saw a downtrodden guy with a cardboard sign which read, Need the love of a good woman on it. <laughs> Going through the main circle area on a morning routine stroll, I saw a couple in their mid-60s, fresh out of the suburbs, just like me. The husband was snapping photos 
when some offended long hair stomped over their way screaming, FBI, FBI, put the camera away. This boiled my blood and when I saw this couple's fear, I went over and told this false righteous clown, leave them alone, they're just snapping pictures of the scenery. He vanished and the couple thanked me. There was a man hanging around Warrior's Kitchen one afternoon with a camera. He was in his mid-40s, bald, and 50 pounds overweight. He asked those in the small post-lunch crowd, can I take your picture? Some reluctantly stood and allowed him to shoot them. Oh, it'll only take a second. It's for an album I'm doing. None of what he said meant anything. I've been photographing at Rambo gatherings for years. He tried in vain to justify his annoyance, laying this trip on some attractive hippie chick. She was so uncomfortable because of his persistence. I got up from sitting against a rock and walked over to him asking, look, can't you see the cameras making people uncomfortable? He didn't want to acknowledge me, so I asked loud enough for people to hear. Why don't you put it away? The guy packed up the camera and left. When I shot pictures, I did so early in the morning while everyone was asleep. Few allowed me to photograph them. One man made me promise to email him a photo, which I never did. He repeated his email address to me and made me say it back. Let me go get a some paper and something to write it down so I'll remember. He didn't want it written down. Just double check, make sure this thing's still recording. Check, check, check. I went over to Main Circle on most nights for dinner. There'd be 200 people seated in a circle waiting for one of the volunteers to serve them rice and beans or Indian lentils with potatoes. A man who looked straight out of the 1860s with a handlebar mustache screamed, yeast at every dinner, doling it out for whoever raised their food bowl or a coffee mug like me. Nutritional yeast makes anything better, which was important considering I was basically eating the same food every day and night. The meals were animal free for three reasons. Lots of vegans, meat and or dairy can spoil quickly and there was no refrigeration. Love in ovens, a kitchen dedicated to desserts used lard, which upset some. Lard lasts forever. Oh yeah. It doesn't have to be refrigerated. Exactly. Go it's delicious. Yourself. Oh, Brian, they had the most delicious yeah. desserts ever. I believe you. No wonder their cakes tasted so good. The magic cat was passed around main circle at dinner. Those running the feeding operation wanted money in order to purchase more food. I left my wallet in Schwam's truck so they didn't get any cash from me. Love in Ovens proved to be a great nighttime spot. Some old hippies strummed on an old acoustic one night singing top 40 sing-alongs in a quality voice and lots of us sang with them. Of course, there were the ubiquitous percussionists. The desserts taste better than anything else I ate there. Food Not Bombs had a kitchen set up that year. I was helping them out and asking this girl about what they do, which is feed the homeless across America. We went to Chicago one time, the worst fucking parts of it, man, and these gangsters were like, what the fuck are you doing here? They were cool to us when we offered them food. That was her story for all the cities she had been in. The three guys working in the kitchen weren't cool at all. Bunch of wise asses, in fact. 
I suppose that since I had a bank account and permanent residence, they figured me to be part of the problem. I ventured off to pay. As I headed back to Food Not Bombs, those wise-cracking art school flunkies nervously demanded to know, Who's there? As I approached them in the darkness. What's up? I said with the most ghetto swagger a white man from suburbia could muster. I even threw out my arms and hands like I wanted to throw down. They weren't amused, and one of them stated, If you can't identify yourself, then you can just get out of here. I turned and walked away. Thank you for telling me about what you do, I said to the girl. I volunteered with the food storage camp folks one day. This dread and I literally ran a packed wooden car in the 100 degree heat from camp to camp, delivering requests like potatoes and lentils. The dude I volunteered with was annoyed because I slowed him down. I was never a runner, especially in the 100 degree heat, sorry. I tried making conversation by asking him, what do you do? He looked at me and said, whatever I have to do to survive. They were set up like a grocery store on the perimeter of the gathering with wholesale foodstuffs. Money from the magic hat went to them, which was spent buying produce from the local grocer or farmer. Some of the food was donated and some was certainly freed from dumpsters. Whenever kitchens needed carrots, salt, lentils, or whatever, they'd come and request it. If what they requested was available, they couldn't take it. If not, it might take a day or so, and they'd have to improvise dinner or not cook at all. The peak of the gathering was July 4th. Warriors of the Living Lake Camp, my temporary home, and the somewhat cliquish characters I was tenting amongst all made an oatmeal breakfast that morning like any other. We didn't chat. On that morning, everyone was in a self-imposed silence to be broken by the children's parade at noon. These must have been the children born without social security numbers I'd heard about. The two days previous, both saw traffic of hippies coming into Modoc National Forest just for that weekend. Attempting conversation, I forgot about the mandatory silence and was firmly reminded with a shh and a smile. Oh shit, sorry, I said by accident, and then I covered up my mouth with both hands. As lots of people streamed down the dirt roads towards the main circle, I noticed I wasn't the only one who had difficulty in being silent. Those who laughed or asked for a light were sternly hushed, and I was excited about this ohm circle. I learned that ohm, O-H-M, is supposed to be the sound of the universe. For us to stand in a circle and hold hands and say ohm using our whole bodies was to harness the power of the universe. Everybody arrived for the circle and held hands. There must have been 500 of us. Joining hands and shutting my eyes, I drew in the most oxygen possible. As I slowly exhaled, I let the ohm flow out with my breath just as everyone else. The second breath, ohm, came out more automatic and my sense of the crowd and Modoc less absolute. The third inhalation and ohm occurred without me. In that minute, my third eye opened and dark purple wheels raged inside my psychic self, circles and symphony with the earth that in turn hummed in order to the galaxy. Sequences of lights lit and blinked around the perimeter of my third eye. Similar lights went around where my eyes were but these eyes I now looked through had become an oceanic or an almond shape. 
Machinery clanked and moved in me. My soul was aroused in a manner that hasn't ever happened like that before or since. John Cullen came back as soon as the third breath had been fully pushed from my diaphragm. I rejoined the group and we got down on one knee to touch our held hands to the dry and dusty red dirt. There were three seconds of silence and then we all cheered and clapped. People hugged and hollered. Dogs barked. The energy that we, quote, grabbed from the universe was now locked into the earth forever, end quote. Most started back to their place of camp and some stood in the sizable expanse just talking in scattered groups. Some mama came storming over from the kids' village, the family-friendly area. This one was really a mama, not some angelic sweetheart with a nice ass. You broke the silence, she yelled. You didn't allow the children to break the silence with the parade. She quickly realized that nobody was heeding her demands, so she gave up. Some laughed at her, including me. On the morning of July 5th, I noticed everybody leaving. From day day on from there here the gathering was thinning out the ones who mostly stay are the cleanup crew by this point my diarrhea was severe i couldn't make it to the shitter anymore which was a trench dug in the ground three feet long nine inches wide i saw a wooden sign which read all shitter diggers go to heaven and i believe it some of these bathrooms quote unquote were privately dug away for most tents with old blankets or plastic strung up for walls and unfortunately some had lines to use and people right there how uncomfortable sometimes you'd have to go get toilet paper once finished dumping you're supposed to throw two cans of ash and one can of lime or maybe two cans of lime in order to keep flies away of course the world is full of lazy inconsiderate assholes they didn't cover up their shit, and the flies would be buzzing around my rear end as I sweated in the heat, squatting down, relieving my bowels. Shortly after I began to shit liquid, a week after I arrived in Rainbow Land, I visited Calm, which is holistic first aid. The warriors I camped with told me, don't drink unfiltered water. There were all kinds of passionate disagreements, but the most animated was the live water people versus the filtered water people. I told the hippies, I just need Pepto-Bismol. You guys have any? They looked at me saying no, similar to the way they would if I offered them lifetime NRA memberships. The camp, C-A-M-P in all capital letters, was holistic. This caring blonde offered me herbal tea and said, this will calm your digestive tract and get rid of whatever is doing this. Thanks for the tea, but do you have any Pepto-Bismol, I asked. She looked at me in disbelief. We don't have that here, she said, studying me similar to the hippies. That stuff's the best, I told her, and she disagreed. The tea didn't work immediately. You still awake? Brian? You're awake? You're like asleep? The only problem, yeah. I meditate with the, you know, I go into a, I like going into the, Transland. Yes, I, I I appreciate it. Okay. And I can hear it, and I've been. Okay. All right. Keep going. All right. Uh, good. Good. I don't sure. want you to stop. Oh, all right. All right. Just make sure you're not falling asleep. No, I go into this all right. weird world. You're you're back at you're back at calm. You're like yeah, thinking I, I need Pepto Bismol too. Nope. No nope, Pepto Bismol now. All right. I need to take a sip of my coffee. Get back into it. All right. Here we go.
I couldn't wait to leave when Schwam showed up where I camped early one afternoon. Are you ready to leave? He asked. Yeah, let's go, I replied, glad to be leaving. My stuff was packed and we headed down the main dirt road one last time. We reached the sprout kitchen near the parking area and had a last taste of the multitude of sprouts, mostly foreign to my taste buds. I spoke to a real nice girl about my experience and I said, everybody I talked to about these gatherings made me feel like everybody here was gonna yell at me or give me shit and I got shit from almost nobody. She said in a shocked voice, oh no, why would you think that? People aren't here to yell at you. Well, that's life. Yeah. Well, yes and no. She was a super awesome sister, and I wish I knew her earlier. We trekked by the Hare Krishna one last time. They were strumming that acoustic guitar and singing, Hare, Hare Krishna, 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 and the rest of it. I laughed while remembering how one afternoon I was eating Krishna cookies amongst their white tents and their singing Hare Krishna. Those cookies were great to have for a four o'clock snack. Shwami said, don't eat those cookies, but I didn't care. My curiosity was itching me and I asked them, hey, you guys always sing that one chant. Do you sing anything else? I don't know if they could comprehend that question. That moment reminded me of the movie Pleasantville where the kids asked, the kid asks, what's beyond Pleasantville? They, they disregarded my no the movie Pleasantville. I know, but what's beyond that? Whoville. No, they no. Like they, they were it was like a blank. They were blank. I know. They disregarded my curiosity and resumed their chanting. The melody and arrangement could vary, but it was always the same Hadi Hadi Krishna. Narell was a friend of Schwam's originally from Jersey. Her broken Subaru wagon sat where she parked it, and some guys were a problem for her. Schwammy and some travelers fixed the car while I socialized with some folks camped by the entrance. There was an, a man in his late 40s in obviously poor health. His legs displayed signs of poor circulation, all bruised and ugly. He was so intoxicated, nearly impossible to understand. This man rambled and slurred, piercing me with his powerful stare. Every once in a while, I'd say, I understand what you mean. I asked one of the guys camping with him, what's this guy's name? His response was, I don't know who he is. We picked him up hitchhiking. We call him Uncle Drunk. He's from Texas. A woman sitting next to Uncle Drunk asked for a ride to Texas. We aren't going to Texas, I said, and she started to cry. New age aspiration, conspiratorial conversations, and the invisible walls erected by cliques. These were my experiences. There was passionate motivation for excellent food, belief in manual labor, and I also encountered some of the saddest people anyone could meet anywhere. I was uplifted. The nighttime drum circles took me on out-of-body experiences, which I regard as a blessed rarity. I played my djembe to a South American's flamenco-inflected guitar. Norell finally had a roadworthy car, and we left the gathering. Harley was looking for a ride out of Modoc and had patched up Norell's car. We headed for the Oregon Country Fair. We stopped in Susanville, California, and back into Babylon. Later on, Schwam would joke that he wanted to buy the town and change the name to Sillyville, 
causing some hippies to laugh. There was an old Victorian general store, complete with the vintage cash registers. I bought some Hershey's chocolate bars. Hey bro, is that Hershey's chocolate? Toonjay, one of the three hitchhikers, asked me. Yeah, I said while eating. I sat in the back seat of Schwammy's F-250, and Toon Jay was at the front of the truck bed with his black-bearded face at the open windows where the cap and the cab meet. I wished he would have let me eat at least one Chaco bar in peace. You're supposed to share. That's the rainbow way, Toon Jay declared. I passed out a Hershey bar, and Toon Jay was thankful. He was a likable character, excited about life. For some reason, I felt like messing with him, and then I felt guilty for it. Of course, everybody wanted chocolate, and I bought enough to go around. We had another character riding along, and I can't remember his name. He had blonde hair and a beard, and he wore an old field jacket. He had a GI surplus bag and a club, which was a tree root ball and two feet of trunk. The club made him a natural for wizard conventions. Harley rode up front with Schwam, and they talked. At twilight, we pulled down into a nondescript gravel parking lot for the hot springs. All six of us walked to the edge of the lot and through the tall grass to reach the hot springs. There were two pools of hot mineral water with tall grasses growing behind us and the highway straight up the embankment. Lying before us was the expansive desert. Since there was hardly any human population to burn lights in Northeast California, the sky showed us the universe unblemished. The waters allowed me to relax and I gazed upwards. What a rare treat to see so many stars and everything up there. As we returned to the truck, a white extended cab dually entered the parking lot. Driving the truck were these two cowboys. Originally from Texas, they came to Southern California to acquire ranch land. These two had driven into this section of the state to buy more acreage, and the driver and Schwammy ended up discussing the rainbow gathering. You think I could get me some of that hippie pussy up there? 35-year-old cowboy asked. He wanted Schwammy to take him to the gathering. I want y'all to take me back on up there so I can get me some of that hippie pussy. He got in Schwammy pining to go back. I want to go back to the gathering, man, Schwam whined. Panic pulsed in me. Schwam, we just left the gathering. Can you just take me to Black Bear first? I pleaded. These Texans made some pair. The driver of the truck was talkative and beaming. He had a Celtic glow and a red mustache. He had the full face of a man who loves rich food and beer. I didn't trust him, and he invited some of us to jump in back for a ride to Modoc. The other man was in his late 60s. With his drawn face and black hat, he should have been in a Western. He looked like Robert Duval. This older gentleman didn't talk much. He didn't need to say a word. Norell Subaru wasn't driving properly. I rode with her through the southern Oregon desert at a slow speed. She laughed about her car breaking down out there in Nothingville. Once we caravaned into a town, there was an auto parts store. The store employees lent the proper tools to get the Subaru fixed and heartily fixed the car right in the parking lot. For that afternoon and early evening, we wandered around this town.
I read every magazine twice in the auto parts store waiting area. Schwam and Norell expressed concern over the lightning strikes. Yeah, lightning. What's the big deal? I asked. They turned towards me and said, this is the dry season out here. Lightning starts fires. Now I was worried about wildfires too. Harley was fed as necessary beers. The front end had brand new bearings. Nobody amongst us had showered in weeks. Toon Jay and Elf Guy with the club were dropped off with the agreement to be picked up later. They didn't have money for a room and decided to sleep out somewhere. Along the way, we found a room that had recently had a shooting in it. Blood stains were evident, even though someone painted over them. This was some cheap place in the questionable part of Eugene, painted yellow and brown. I've gone maybe four days without showering before. My hair gets all greasy and itchy. I could smell myself. After not bathing for 11 days, you stop noticing how filthy you are. My hair was almost a crust when I stood under that vaguely familiar shower head in that bathroom. The color of the water coming off of me looked brown gray. A shower meant so much, especially after five weeks of heat, sweat, and dust. We relaxed in our shady room and watched The Simpsons when a cockroach was spotted. Norell and I were disturbed. Schwam squashed it and then went to get our money back. He came back in anger. The motherfucker won't give us back our money, man. Schwam picked up El Cacarocha with the plastic diamond-shaped key tag with the room number on it. He went back down to the office to show the disbelieving manager. The husband and wife management team called the police. Harley slept away. He was happy to be in an actual bed. Harley, we have to leave, Norell said as she stood over Harley. <laughs> he didn't wake up. Norell and I stood over Harley, both telling him to wake up. Why do we have to leave? Harley wanted to know. There are roaches in this room and I can't sleep in here, Norell said. Harley was hot. Fucking woods are full of bugs and you can't take a weedy bitty bug. Harley, roaches aren't some itty bitty bug, I said, and Norell nodded. I'm sure Schwam would have stayed in the room if Norell and I didn't vocalize such displeasure. We said, the police are coming, and Harley hid across the street. The police saw the roach and they rolled in our favor. <coughs> Did you get to stay? Well, we left the room. We got our money back. Oh, you did. Because the cops okay. came in and the cops well, were like, yeah, I wouldn't want to stay in a room with roaches well, either and blood back. stains. And you they gave us the money back and we left. Yeah, you didn't say that though. I was oh, curious. Okay. Yeah, well, I said that the, the police saw the roach and they ruled in our favor. Because they, they thought we were going to be like, oh, no, it's okay. We don't want the police here. You know, they probably thought we were... Afraid of getting busted, yeah, but we, you know, that's we were like, yeah, bring Harley the cops. Went across the yeah, that's why Harley went. I, yeah, that woke him up. Like I said, he he got right out of bed almost instantly yeah, once we said that. Yeah, something. Yeah, he got right. He went across the street and like there was like a wild kind of wooded area over next between some buildings. I'll see you on the way out. Yeah, we, we picked him up like down around the corner. That morning, we ate breakfast in this perfect little place, a Dutch colonial home converted into a semi-upscale restaurant. Certainly, this wasn't the Eugene I'd been told 
of or envisioned, for there weren't dreadlocked activists anywhere. We were seated on the patio in the back. The table next to us consisted of parents, their college-aged daughter, and her boyfriend. The mother kept glancing over at us. While they talked of education and upper-class vacationing, Schwam and Harley discussed drinking and dumpster diving. I was uncomfortable. Harley wasn't accustomed to eating amongst upper-crust suburbanites. Schwam was, so how could he holler and speak about these things in this place? About three-quarters of the way through our pancakes and omelets, Harley had taken off his filthy cap and shirt. <gasps> he stretched out his arms and he said, This sure is better than eating out of a dumpster. And he thanked us for buying him such a meal. The tight asses next to us winced as Harley at Harley as if he were a leper. My embarrassment dissolved. Harley's pure gratitude made me realize how blessed I am. I wanted to say to the yuppies next to us, this man is Harley and he has more decency than you. We hit the road and went north towards the legendary Oregon Country Fair. Ferrandino repeatedly told me in the months before I left Pennsylvania, you have to check out the Country Fair, Johnny. I heard about the performance artists, circus acrobats, and unbelievably crafted items. The fairground had small fields to park in. There were as many license plates from Washington and California as there were from Oregon. This place had a whole concentration of artists and craftspeople. The atmosphere was festive with bubble blowers, drum, drummers, and flying frisbees. The loggers came down from the mountains because they appreciate handcrafted swords, knives, and axes. At the gates leading in and out, a few cars were parked there. One of these old cars was a Mercedes-Benz. Some local organization converted standard diesel into biodiesel. The cars had signs plastered on them and sandwich board signs on their roofs declaring the benefits for your wallet and environment that an engine convert brings. We paid an entry fee and proceeded into this replica of a frontier fort. There were log walls and the fort had sentry towers. The variety of food was vast. This would have been a perfect place to Christmas shop. This fair gave me the perception of going back in time, just as the gathering had done. Lots of the handmade clothing had a Wiccan or a Middle Eastern feel. Schwam and I were walking through the crowd and happened upon a roaming storyteller. He directed us aside and told us a tale. He looked like one of the guys from A Clockwork Orange, and this skinny, large-eyed kid kept on with a story I didn't understand. I thought maybe he'd be upset at the end when I would have to say, I couldn't follow the story. Yeah, it was might as well add, I was I, eating some fungus. And like just when we met this guy, it was just when I was starting to hit the peak. Watching Schwammy's face during the tale was all the entertainment I needed. He'd alternate between smiling and wincing. His face had the rhythm of the Pacific Ocean hitting the beach. I caught a belly dancing show. This dark-haired girl in a baby blue outfit shook and slithered along with the music, and I was in a trance. She wasn't much over 20, and I could have watched her gyrate indefinitely. Later on, there were some bluegrass that uplifted me. The crowd cheered and screamed. I smiled so much my face hurt. We camped high in the National Forest that night. 
Shwami, Norell, and I set up our tents, and the hitchhikers got a fire going. Norell asked Dr. Harley for the prognosis on the Subaru, which was driving poorly. Well, okay. He was about to give an uneasy Norell the answer when Shwami yelled out into a tranquil night, Yo, Harley! It's almost midnight! We gotta get down to 7-Eleven and get some beer! Schwam was saying beer just like Harley now. Harley yelled back, Okay, I'm a coming! As he rushed off towards the truck. I'm a coming. Yep. Norell threw up her arms in disappointment and rolled her eyes. Now I'll never know about my car. She was cross and I said, don't worry, Norell. I have a feeling Harley fixed whatever the problem was, and if not, Schwam and I will help pay to fix it at the nearest garage. I tried to fall asleep. Schwam, Harley, Toon Jay, and the blonde-haired kid had all been hefting, hefting down beers around the campfire. The loudly slurring stories and laughing, especially you-know-who, was torture. I got out of my tent which I placed about 40 feet from everybody else and went over to the guys. Hey, could you guys keep it down a little? I just want to sleep. I don't care if you stay up all night. Sorry, bro, they said. Didn't take long for the volume of the laughter and camaraderie to rise. I lay in my tent thinking about what Black Bear would be like. I hoped the thought would help tune out the little party nearby. Norell slept and I had to try. Those jokers were so distracting. Unzipping the screen door, I walked over to them again. I hate to be a pain in the ass like some old lady or something, but you guys are being so loud. Clearly, I was more upset now than the first time I'd requested that they be less loud. The four of them apologized, and they were sincere enough. I went back to my tent. I was almost asleep when the noise level seemed more amped than ever. I practically tore through the tent to get out and stormed over to the campfire. Don't you have any consideration... For other people, I asked them. Can't you be quiet? All of them had drank enough to float a ship. They stood up and were shaking my hand saying, I'm so sorry, Johnny. We had to hug one another and this reminded me of me. By 2004, I hadn't had a drink in three years. It's easy to, to forget what one acts like when drinking and I certainly did. While falling asleep in the tent, the blind kid with the club was outside apologizing to me while offering up his story. It's okay. I'm not mad, I said, as my rage was returning. In the morning, we packed up our tents and made sure the fire was extinguished. Harley had beer for breakfast and told Norell the car would be fine. A forest ranger pulled us over, wanting to know where we were camping. Schwam told him where we slept. The ranger said, we have a mutual agreement in this town not to camp up on this road since the area up here is the watershed for the river. I believe he wanted us to know this simply so we wouldn't camp there twice. Instead of nodding a yes, Schwam said, honestly, sir, it's right in the constitution that we as citizens can camp in the national forest anywhere we want to. Boom! The ranger didn't disagree, but stated again, we have an agreement with the town not to allow camping here on this road in order to protect the watershed. Go fuck yourself, forest ranger. He came around to my side of the truck. Can you please step out of the truck, he asked me. Always, Johnny. Yep. The two of us stood behind the Ford. This ranger was of medium build and stood about five foot eight. 
His hair was gray and he wore expensive frameless glasses. This man's eyes scanned me up and down. He wasn't intimidating for his physicality. It was his eyes that disturbed me. The look of formidable intelligence. This guy doesn't miss formidable, formidable means like scary, oh. like like somebody who's yeah, in, yeah, intimidating. So scary, yeah, formidable intelligence. This guy doesn't miss anything. I thought to myself. So John, he you knows. live in Berwyn. The ranger held my license. Yes, I was trying so hard to seem relaxed. What kind of town is Berwyn? He wanted to know while eyeing me. Oh, just an upper middle class town. 20 minutes outside of Philadelphia. There's a lot of historic homes. It's really nice. Christ, I was sounding like an idiot. How far from Philadelphia is Berwyn? How many miles? He was trying to make me slip. Hmm, 60 miles? I couldn't believe I said that. Yeah, it was like... 20 it's like 18 miles or something yeah the forest ranger stepped towards me and said you said berwin was only 20 minutes from philadelphia how could it be 60 miles traffic at this, bitch at this point there was no disguising that i was scared uh, uh, i meant to say 16 miles 16 not 60 i said with my adrenal glands pumping louder than my heart he laughed a little and then asked John, you wouldn't be using any illegal drugs or have them on you, would you? I looked at him and straightened up to say, I don't have any drugs on me. You can search me or my stuff. I don't use drugs and I haven't had a drink in three years. The ranger smiled, looked and looked more like a human again. Oh, that's great. Congratulations. You broke him. Just when I thought the forest fuzz was gonna let me go. He, forest fuzz. The forest fuzz. He looked, grew serious again. Are there any drugs in this vehicle? He inquired. With eye contact, I told him, you can ask my friend about searching the truck because I can't give permission. The ranger tried to scare me into a confession by saying, if you cooperate, you're not in trouble and you can tell me if there are drugs in this vehicle. I thought of what I learned at the gathering. When law enforcement is involved, don't display fear, they use it. Standing up straight again, I declared, I can't speak for my friends, but I don't have or use any illegal drugs. Miraculously, he let us go. We spent a few hours in Ashland. Hold on. Yeah. Message. Yeah. Go ahead. Toonjay and the nameless gnome said goodbye and walked off. <laughs> there were numerous Victorian era homes and commercial buildings. What a great little town. Surely swept every night in order to ensure it would remain so immaculate. They had a bookstore with these proper ladies at the register. I approached them and asked, excuse me, do you have any David Icke books? The uh, woman behind the counter stared at me. The conspiracy theorist guy? Yes. <gasps> Look at mm, me. No, we don't sell those types of books in here. I wouldn't either. The lady said. I bought a book on English Victorian painter J.W. Waterhouse and a book called Chow America, which was written by the Italian author Beppe Severignini. This book was about the Italian writer's experiences living here in America. Great. Before we left Ashland, Schwammy let me know, you definitely want to make a good impression on the residents. Bring them some groceries, man. Cheese and coffee are always good, he said.
Carly, Schwam, Norell, and I visited two co-ops. I spent $200 on stuff for Black Bear. I purchased several different types of cheeses, chocolate, coffee beans, bags of fruits, almond butter, and peanut butter. Whatever else I did purchase, I can't remember. Schwammy bought tobacco and beer, amongst other goods. Butter, baby. Oh, yeah. They loved us. I don't recall what Narelle bought. Harley was outside in the dumpster looking for still edible food. He found cans to put into their special recycle machines, which dispense coins for the aluminum. Recycling is popular in Oregon and not only for environmental reasons. Many people don't have regular employment, so they scavenge the highways and parking lots for cans. We loaded up our groceries and hit the road. Harley was grateful for the quote, burr Schwammy bought. The sun was setting. I was ecstatic, which I normally feel after that sort of marathon food shopping. I wondered if the residents at Black Bear would like me. The Ford and Subaru rolled down the three mile driveway, which is the Black Bear Road. We parked in front of the main house. Everybody came out to welcome us. Can you pause for a second? Yeah, yeah. When you were going down that, what yeah. time of year was it? Um, no, don't pause the recording. Pause your. No, I know. I'm not pausing the recording. What I'm just going to underline so I know where I was it? here. Um, I was, um, well, like mid to late July. It was like right, it was like a little bit later than right now. So summertime. Yeah, okay. summertime. Okay. Yeah. Keep going, John. I will. We're, we're talking about Black Bear now. Okay. Oh, okay. We parked in front of the main house. Everybody came out to welcome us and we introduced ourselves. Welcome home, baby. Yep. Stuff was eyed with hungry joy as the group put it away in the proper places. There was Oscar, Elizabeth, and their son. I instantly liked Hannah and Dakota and their two young children, Maya and Ocean. Nevis and Dan Danny were the motley couple. She was sociable, bright, and had that beauty which Hollywood adored 60 years ago. Danny was the quiet, brooding musician who eyed me with suspicion. One day, I said something akin to, This is America. We can do anything. To, to which he retorted, This isn't America. This is Jefferson. In the 60s, a number of rugged individualists petitioned the government to have Northern California and Southern Oregon become the 51st state. Jefferson. Lots of libertarian-minded people out there in those mountain forests advocate Jefferson, their own independent state. This bar restaurant in Orleans had red ashtrays. Signs stated, <clears throat> California law prohibits smoking in this establishment. I commented on this to Dakota who said, that's California law, this is Jefferson. Riddler made me think of Rasputin with those eyes. Riddler was all right, but Alira was quiet, and I felt her to be untrustworthy. There was Dan from Washington, who was a friend of Riddler and Alira. He extended his hand for me to shake. We shook hands, and he said, hi, I'm Dan. One of my initial nights there, I was headed off to sleep, and everyone in the kitchen was playing cards and listening to music. They asked, why are you going to bed so early? As I walked out of the kitchen door to go off to sleep, I replied, because I'm tired. 
Dan was chopping some wood right outside there and he said, you're a wuss. He didn't say it good naturedly and I wanted to prove that I wasn't. One of Black Bear's cardinal rules was no fighting and I let his comment go. The, commu the community, don't let the hippies hear you calling it a commune, known as the bear, has been owned collectively since 1965, Schwam said. According to blackbearranch.org, the community has been in the current form since 1968. Apparently, the Diggers, an activist street theater group based in San Francisco, bought the place after having some fundraisers. Celebrities, including Warren Beatty, donated the, to the purchase. The Black Panthers trained there. This property in the wilderness had been the Black Bear Mine with a little town. The main house was the only original building from the mining time. This main house served as a general store and was a Sears and Roebuck prefab bought in San Francisco. John Daggett, the original owner of the mine and governor of Northern California, had the building hauled by a mule train. These days, the drive from Black Bear to San Fran is eight hours. I cannot fathom a mule train bringing all that weight north 140 years ago. Damn. It had a kitchen with a wood-burning oven and yeah. a large dining room. That's awesome. Yeah, it was. The front and side porches were welcoming, especially the side porch. From the side porch after dinner, we'd initially see 200 dragonflies in the dusk. They would disappear right before the sun went down, and then the bats would come out. Nobody ever told me that our skies contained so many stars. One of my first days there, I went over to the pond near the meadow and the sweat lodge. The afternoons would reach over 100 degrees and everyone went into the pond. This half acre body of water is so cold because it's fed by a natural spring. I feared snapping turtles and wouldn't go in. They don't have snapping turtles out here, Norell told me. Absolutely not. Snapping turtles, everybody asked, and Narell said, it's an East Coast thing. The sleeping porch was above the front porch, and I slept there for several weeks. I'm an early riser, and so were Nevis, Danny, Dakota, Harley, and Troll. Riddler and Alira and Dan were up late, and we didn't see them until lunch most days. We'd have a breakfast together of either oatmeal or eggs with potatoes. These people appreciated good coffee. During a robust conversation one morning at breakfast, Dakota attempted a mimic at my Philly accent. He was laughing and grinning, saying, coffee. And I said, no, 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 it's coffee. You make me sound like some Jew from Brooklyn. Yes. The way I say coffee and other things such as water was funny sounding to them, especially to Dakota. Yes. I joked back saying things like, I have to hold my mouth open as far as possible to say coffee yes. the way you guys say it. I did too, and my jaw ached from doing so. I complained, my jaw hurts from saying coffee that way, and I feel like I'm gonna drool. Approximately once a week, Dakota would drive down to Forks of Salmon post office to check the mailbox and or to get supplies such as propane or something for his children. I was with him on one of these trips and I called my parents from a payphone. This particular day, I was 
in, I was feeling such optimism and was telling my dad how great Black Bear was. You can't live in the woods forever, John, he screamed. The chickens needed to be let out of their coops and fed. Living chickens had never been a part of my life before. I started letting these silly squawkers out of their coops every morning and feeding them too. Tending them caused me to realize their different, different personalities. They seemed to chatter with one another. To me, the chickens sounded similar to the elderly, as if they were concerned or complaining. After feeding the chickens, I started in the garden next to the main house. This quarter acre patch had been neglected long enough to be conquered by weeds. I weeded the beds, creating a huge compost pile. The food scrap bucket from the kitchen went there and I handled running it out. Instead of refrigeration, the main house had a larder for cool storage. Dug into the hillside off the back of the kitchen, a small eight by 12 foot room in which you had to watch your head. I was told that's where the seeds are. They had so many different packs of seeds, carrots, cukes, tomatoes, squashes, peppers, various greens, different beans, and more. Two big shelves held an assortment of books on everything from revolution to current women's fashion. I found a book called Carrots Love Tomatoes and couldn't put it down. There was a biography on the Beatles written in the late 60s. What a horrible book. Since I'd spent afternoons weeding in the hot and dry sun, I'd discovered kale, zucchini, potatoes, and some baby tomatoes too. I'd come back in with this stuff along with some dill and some parsley and Nevis is like, where's this from? I told her, it's amazing what you can find when you pull weeds. She laughed and nodded her head in agreement. She made some kick-ass stir-fry lunches. We had a blast, joking about Black Bear being on MTV spring break due to the 110 degree Fahrenheit temperature. One particular afternoon on the front porch, there was great concern about the lightning strikes touching off wildfires nearby. Nevis had been talking to the fire lookout guy on the CB, a popular way to communicate in Northern California. We could hear the lightning strikes over the CB as a static-like click coming from the receiver. Nevis urged everyone onto the porch to join her in a rain chant. The idea seemed humorous to me. I played the bongos while chanting. Nevis hit a tambourine, leading and encouraging everyone to invocate from the heart. I found the chant intricate. My tongue tripped and obviously others did too. We were fumbling verses on the front porch in a circle. Nevis chanted and shook the tambourine as she sat next to me making eye contact with the individuals to assure that we chanted correctly. The repressed laughter in me dissolved because I saw how serious Nevis was. This quote unquote city boy, as I became known, remembered Schwam and Norell's concern over lightning causing wildfires a few weeks ago. Our chanting didn't bring rain, but the lightning ceased. I had stayed for my two week trial period and the residents wanted to decide on me living there. Before they voted on whether to let me stay or not, they had questions. Danny wanted to know, are you or have you ever been affiliated with the United States federal government? I laughed and said, oh yeah, I work for the FBI. Danny went from being suspicious to declaring, don't laugh, this is serious. 
I felt that Danny asked the question all of the residents wanted to know. He even slammed a fist on the dining room table of the main house. I once again underestimated how serious they could be at the bear. Dakota asked me, why are you here? Why should we let you become a resident? My interview was a trial. There was an uncomfortable stop in the conversation as I searched for some brilliant and worthy answer. I like your girl's ass. I just want to be here. Bang. That was all I could say, and in my mind, there was no way they would let me stay. Not only did I become a resident, but Dakota told me on the side porch, I liked what you had to say inside about just wanting to be here. Dakota also said, you know, you're not exactly on top of the food chain anymore. Looking at him, I said, I know. And this realization never entered my mind until then. This is a very dangerous place and you could easily lose your life. Dakota warned me through narrowed eyes. He knew. <sighs> did you want to be there? Yeah, I did. That's all I could say. Like I said, I just, that's all, that's all I said. I was just, I want to be here. Like I didn't know what to say. I was searching for something. I had nothing else. And I was like, yeah, they're not going to keep me. They think I'm a jerk off, you know. They were nice enough, they were cool, but at the same time, I was kind of like, I don't know if they want me here. Yeah. Lots of things happened quickly. Not only did I become a resident, Harley did too. Harley fixed the brakes on the power wagon and he got the 80s Chevy Suburban running. We both proved to be worth keeping. I brought a lot of delicious high-end groceries and I gave $250 to the ranch fund, which brought applause. The ranch fund is a bank account the community could use to repair things, buy groceries, or whatever they voted to spend the cash on. Oscar and Elizabeth didn't get along with Hannah and Dakota. I seem to remember that Oscar and Elizabeth didn't clean up after themselves too well. Oscar and Elizabeth's toddler son shit in his pants and they lay out on the ground. I won't forget Dakota's reaction. He told me, as the parents, they should clean up those fucking pants. Dakota and Oscar argued. Oscar, Elizabeth, and their boy left the bear. Nevis, Danny, and Bella, the Australian cattle dog, went back to San Francisco. At Black Bear, there's a tradition known as, quote, women's weekend. All men off the ranch. It's women all weekend with their small children if they have them. I thought this was a good time to go visit I thought this was a good time to go eight hours north and see Donna and Shiloh, who I lived with during my first West Coast visit. I knew I'd have to hitchhike, which I'd never done before. Are people going to pick me up? I asked Dakota. Are you kidding? A handsome stud like you? He and Hannah laughed. I don't recall what the other guys did. No way in hell I was hitchhiking alone, so I asked Harley to come with me. He was excited about going and was on the road 17 years at this point. Holy shit. Yep. She gave us a ride up to Medford in Oregon. For some reason, I think she was getting new glasses. We thanked Kara and headed for the I-5. I was told Oregon is the only state in the nation where it's legal to thumb it on the interstate. Harley grabbed an old piece of cardboard in order to quote, fly us a sign, Johnny. He schooled me on making signs. The sign which brought me the most money was in Salt Lake City with nothing but a smiley face on it. 
I asked Harley, what are you going to put on this one? Harley spoke with a worn knowledge. Just have to wait and see from the road which towns are coming up, and then I'll write one of them on here. You don't want to write down a town name too far away. Then again, you don't want to write down one too close neither. You'll see. I'll teach you how, Johnny. It was obvious that Harley felt good to have a student. My teacher muttered something about, quote, getting some burr, and I said, we're not stopping for beer. We weren't on the highway more than 20 minutes when Harley veered off to the right in distracted silence. Panicked, I yelled and jogged off the shoulder as he was about to scale a small rusty fence. Harley, where the hell are you going? He forgot all about me. I gotta fly me a sign and get me some money for some bird, Johnny. I forgot to factor in the drinking. Harley, we can't stop for beer. I was desperate. Harley headed across the field to the rest stop and I followed yelling, I'll buy you some beer, Harley. He stuffed two packs of Natty Ice into his pack. I bought some trail mix, chocolate bars, and water. We got back on the interstate. I'm six foot, okay? Harley was probably 5'3". The length of my legs guaranteed I'd walk faster than Harley and add in that I was fixated on getting to Cornelius quickly. Ferrandino nicknamed me Johnny Octane for a reason. Come on, Harley, can't you walk faster? I would be standing 100 feet ahead and yelling this back to him as I took breaks to allow my travel instructor to catch up. You gotta stop being in such a hurry all the time. Oh my God, was, I named you that. Yeah, that? you did, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Harley was dead set against haste. One ride we got, the guy offered to take just me and not wait for Harley, who was running as speedily as a little man can with his heavy pack on. I can't do that to him. The guy sighed and said, all right. Of course, I used this against Harley. This guy was nice enough and stopped, and you, you caused him to wait because you walk so slow. Five of, foot. Yeah. Of course, this was all in good fun, and Harley would laugh gently and thank the man for the ride. Somebody stopped for Harley, and I had to turn around and jog down the I-5 for 60 feet. Johnny, see what I told you about being in a hurry all the time? No. It was my turn to apologize. Hold on, Johnny. Yeah. So one of those early rides was from a young couple in their early 20s. They were singers in this choir, and they saw us thumb at it on their way to recital. How in love they were, especially the girl. I sat in the back behind the driver and watched his woman sing to him. She had a, her suit upper lip and a perfect smile. Did she have big boobies? Um, I don't know. Come on, Johnny. Go. She didn't have the most attractive face, but her vocal ability and those large brown eyes made her gorgeous. Like most of the rides we caught, this one was short. We walked north on the five. Harley drank one can of Natty Ice after another, and I had to put them in his pack and then grab him a fresh one. He stopped to pick up rubber strap tie-downs. Oh, Jesus. Harley checked inside every pack of cigarettes found along the journey. Is that why you look at the rubber strap? Maybe, yeah. I'm looking for some money, Johnny. Ain't you never put money in a cigarette pack? Harley and I couldn't believe each other. Jesus, he's right. Yeah, Harley, just not anymore. I don't smoke, I said. 
Johnny, I found money cigarette packs before, and that's why I stopped and checked. He's right. The scenery in this part of Oregon was farms and mountains of dug firs. Harley would look at the highway signs that let drivers know which towns are coming up soon, and he'd flip the piece of cardboard around and write a different sound on the town on the other side. Seemed to me like switching bait in hopes of catching a fish. One evening, a late 80s mint condition white vanigan pulled over. This guy was a raver sort with dreads. The VW belonged to his girlfriend's best friend, or it was his girlfriend's or something along that line. And he was, quote, driving it up to Portland for her from Southern Cali, brah, end quote. We're going to Portland, we said in reply to his question where you headed. He informed us. I'm spending the night with friends in Eugene. You guys can crash somewhere and I'll pick you up in the morning and I'll take you to Portland. He said this brightly and I said, thank you. We listened to club music and he packed Harley up some bong hits. Harley sat up front with this nice soft-spoken stranger getting high and more intoxicated. Can you stop drinking in here? Our driver asked Harley who powered down another can of Natty Ice. No. Harley handed the empty back to me to put in his pack and spilled the bong. Oh, Jesus, in his car. We pulled over at the rest stop and the driver of the van was in flustered disarray, but didn't say too much. He got towels out of the van somewhere and I asked for one. We ran the towels under hot water and scrubbed the gray carpets. The messenger. I can give you some money with to buy something to clean this up with. You good? Do you need to check something? I can give you some money to buy something to clean this up with, I said to no avail. We kept scrubbing the interior with steamy, wet, hot towels, wringing them out in the asphalt on the asphalt and scrubbing, soaking them in the men's room again. The smell was lessened and we drove north again. As we exited the I-5 and into downtown Eugene, the raver dude pulled into a shopping center parking lot. We said our goodbyes and I apologized again. He wasn't picking us up in the morning. This was obvious. I waited in the back for Harley to get out and slide open the side door. I had his pack and my heavily loaded book bag barricading me in. Harley, it's time for us to go. Get out and open the side door. I waited for him to respond. Wake the fuck up, Harley. Half blacked out, Harley slurred the question, So going you doing tonight? I didn't give our poor driver a chance to answer. Harley, he's going to a friend's. We're getting out of here. Silence was the van again. Awkward. Harley looked at this guy and asked, What what's going on in this town tonight? The guy said in a spent and frightened voice, I'm going to my friends and you guys are getting out of here. I was agitated and embarrassed. Harley, we have to exit the van. You have to get out and open this door now. Harley finally listened and poured out of the front passenger seat. Dude fired up the V-dub as we got our backpacks out. Harley and I entered Eugene as the bars were closing. 
I was surrounded by screaming, drunken frat boys oh, and sorostitutes. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. A fat guy outside the first bar we passed wanted change. I don't have any money, I said as I as I hurried along. Naturally, Fatso asked Harley. Ah, money, Harley stammered. What's going on in this town tonight? Harley was about to fall the hell over and he wanted to go drink somewhere. Where? Anywhere. Okay. So we're back. Eugene, Oregon, Harley and I with the drunks on the street, Harley, as we get dropped off, you know, the 80s VW Vanagon ride, Harley spilled what I edited out of the story, Brian, um, um, I have it in another version where I was handing Harley the bong and he spilled it, like he's flipped his arm around. Oh, It's no. kind of a confusing, to, I'd have to describe it to you after we get done well, I this. know this but anyway yeah, he he yeah so that's why it was like when he flipped it it was a thing so anyway he was drinking on me oh big time so harley okay we're on the street with the fat drunk trying to spare change me we're uh, from around here we don't know what's going on in this town come on harley let's go i said as i steered him with a hand on his shoulder around this fat asshole Fat fuck with the mustache scowled at me and stated, Nobody comes into my town without giving me money. He tightened his jaw and leaned over his brown 10-speed at me. I was exhausted. All up and down the street was rude yelling and maelstrom potential. Some of the frat boys were now shirtless and definitely searching for trouble. Don't fuck with me, man, I said. And he rode away. Harley wanted more beer and was intent on maybe getting free booze. How the hell are you going to do that, Harley? I rudely asked as we passed by a bar with amps, drums, and instrument cases stacked out on the sidewalk. Look at this, Johnny, Harley exclaimed and motioned his arms around like a baby bird does with its wings. Ah. <laughs> I helped ban the equipment, <laughs> and I'll give him some burr. With this, Harley smiled like he just inherited a billion dollars. He put up his index finger as if to make a point and said, I'll be right back. I was tired. My legs ached, and my spine couldn't carry my backpack anymore. Just before Harley got to the door, I said, Harley, it's two in the morning. Let's just find a place to crash and tomorrow I will buy you beer and liquor. Whatever you want, man. I thought Harley was going to ignore me, but he didn't. At the edge of Eugene, there was a homeless looking punk rocker kid. Harley asked him, Hey man, you know any good somewhere to squat in this town is? We from around here. I'm not sleeping in some fucking squat. We're almost out of town and we can sleep outdoors. I said. Jesus, Harley's a genius. The two of us walked east along the 126. Did he ever talk about train hopping with you? A little bit, yeah. I get into that a little bit. Okay. Off to the right side of the highway was a big grassy area with some sizable oak trees. 
looked like heaven to me, and I motioned to Harley, who followed. I thought sleeping behind these trees was good for two reasons. We could stay hidden, and if some vehicle came off the road, we'd have some protection. I was laying out my sleeping bag, and Harley staggered past me, uttering, Good Santa morning. <clears throat> he stopped 30 feet east of me and laid out his sleeping bag. I'd slept in the woods before, no big deal. This was the first time I'd ever slept along a highway, and I was nervous. I got up, grabbed my stuff, and dragged it over towards Harley and set myself down five feet away. He was almost asleep when he turned over and grumbled at me. Harley got up and moved 30 feet down the road. I couldn't feel safe alone. When I followed Harley again and sat down to sleep a few feet away, he rolled over and stared at me with skeptical disbelief. Look, I, why do you follow me? Is this the second time this happened? First, first and only time. No, no, wait. Did you tell me this already? I told you this the other night. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, wait, this happened yeah, I just, again? No, no, it happened once. I thought to myself, oh no, Harley thinks I'm coming on to him. <laughs> Harley stared at me. Those hobo eyes wanted an answer. <laughs> I didn't want him to think I was gay, and I didn't want him to know I was scared. He seemed about ready to move again when I reluctantly admitted, I'm scared, Harley. He sat upright, the suspicion in his face vanished. Ain't nothing to be scared of, Johnny. Don't worry, I'll protect you. How I long woke... have you known him at this point? I've, like, a few, few weeks. Uh, a few weeks. It was longer than that. No, it was okay. close to a month by then. Uh -huh. Yeah, it was a so while. So he should have known. Yeah, it was just well, as drunk and Yeah, he was just drunk and he ate him. Yeah. I was so embarrassed. I had to tell him I was scared. <laughs> oh, dude, I was, it was so awkward. And he was getting up to leave. And I was like, I'm scared, Harley. Like a little kid. I don't want to be raped by a bear. Yeah. Oh, God. Or you. But yeah, exactly. I love you right now. Right. But I don't love you. So I woke at 6 a.m. to pee. After urinating, I couldn't sleep. <laughs> the trucks roared by, and I laid there for a while. Looking over at Harley, I knew he'd sleep all day. After an hour, I woke him up, and Harley didn't like that. Harley, I'm sorry, I said. I'm going to get you whatever kind of beer you want, and we'll have another amazing breakfast, okay? I spotted an IHOP, and we exited the I-5. Our waitress was a southern lady, much to Harley's delight. She was aghast at our hitchhiking, similar to anyone not familiar with the Pacific Northwest. Soon enough, I bought Harley some 12 packs of beast or hams. I don't remember. What I'll never forget was all the delicious beers at the truck stop, and Harley wanted piss. <laughs> Harley, are you sure this is what you want? I stared at him in disbelief. That's the beer my daddy used yeah, to drink. Yeah, oh yeah, dude, yeah. Harley didn't have any interest in any type of microbrew. Nah, this is good, Johnny, he told me as we walked to the register. The two of us had another beautiful day along the I-5. We caught some local rides, meaning that people would take us a few miles, then let us out. Harley kept picking up cans and various things that blew off and out of cars and trucks. Was he 
Was he <coughs> putting the trash in the trash or was he? No, in his pack, dude. I kept stuffing everything in his pack. Yeah, to sell it somewhere or keep it for something Jesus for a rainy day. Christ. Yeah. <laughs> By the afternoon, Harley was way intoxicated. At this point, we stopped for a rest. I had to take a leak and Harley had made us assigned to Portland. I emerged from a thicket of weeds and shrubs and there was Harley sitting down and reclining against his pack. Uh oh. He wore some sunglasses he'd found there on the interstate. Harley had a beer in hand and a cardboard sign rested atop his shoes and against his shins that shouted, Portland, because he'd written it so large. I wish I had my camera. What a Kodak moment, I yelled over the traffic and Harley laughed. A white collar guy stopped and picked us up. Wow. Yeah. Oh, this is good. Ready? Harley fell into the back seat and I climbed up front. The man was pudgy with these overstated glasses. He was a talker and the two of us discussed everything. Eventually, the conversation turned towards politics. This was the summer of 2004, and the whole country was engaged in the upcoming election. And war. Here we were having a civil conversation about the presidential race, and Harley loudly interrupted from the back. Oh, well, they're all a bunch of fucking bums. We're going kill them all. Start a revolution. The man looked at me with unease. I didn't know what to say. He glanced at Harley in his rear view and looked at me again, this time with a rattled fear. You know this guy? <laughs> he asked me quietly. Oh yeah, that's Harley, I replied, praying this man wouldn't call the FBI. Not surprisingly, this man wasn't relieved. I believe that my answer made him even more unnerved. Because there's two of you. <laughs> now, how long have you known this guy? He asked me. Oh, I guess about six weeks. My answer did nothing to soothe him, and I said, Hey, I've been around him enough to know he's a good guy. He's harmless, just loves to drink. Don't worry about it. We rode the rest of the way in silence. The man dropped us off just outside of Portland. We took the train and then the bus to Cornelius, and I was so excited to be back. I called Donna and Shiloh, leaving them the message we were walking up to the house. Oh, Jesus. I was tired of supplying Harley with beer, and I told him so at the 7-Eleven where I bought Donna a 12-pack of Corona. You walked with a 12-pack? Yeah. Wait, you... For the people that don't know, she lives on the sheer side of a, like, 80-degree incline. Yes. Well, Brian, my travels across the country greatly changed my view of, like, you know, what, like, how far a distance is. Not only, like, in a vehicle driving, walking. but also walking. Bicycling, walking. But it doesn't matter. I'm like, ah, it's nothing. We can do it. Yeah, you know, we'll sleep on the side of the road if we have to. In your mind is this It's year, pretty, it's, it's a, it's a nice healthy walk from <laughs> civilization. Now your butt cheeks are getting strong on that one. Yeah. <clears throat> you carried a 12. Yeah, yeah. All right. So hold on. Let me, let's get back to it. Ready? So I, I told Harley I was tired of supplying him with beer. I told him at 7-Eleven where I bought Donna the 12 pack of Corona. Walking along Highway 8, I did my periodic looking over the shoulder to check for Harley. 
He was gone. Oh, Jesus. Motherfucker, I furiously said. Retracing my steps, I looked this way and that. Where was he? Harley wasn't at the 7-Eleven. I stomped around Cornelius and even asked a few people if they'd seen a short hippie looking guy with a light blue pack. No, was the answer. I located my hobo friend coming out of a sleazy shop with a couple of 40s in a brown bag. Jesus. He, he, He's he, a master. Yes, he is. I thought you were behind me. I looked over my shoulder and you're gone. I was yelling at Harley. I'm and a slippery he, one. And he was his usual sense <laughs> self. I'm good, yay. Yeah. Well, Johnny, I cashed in some of cans and then I need a spare. Change me some money. Pity money, get me some fur. <laughs> I could have strangled him. I walked ahead of Harley as usual, and in no time he drank down his 40s. God. Can I get me one of them Corona, Johnny? Oh, Jesus. Harley asked me. That's how yeah, but just one. This is a gift for Donna, and I can't have you drinking all of her beer, I snapped. Shiloh came searching for us and picked us up. We weren't there 20 minutes and Harley asked Donna, Do you have any burr? <laughs> I should have seen this coming. Oh, sure, you can have some of mine in the fridge. After the third or fourth, I said, Just drink it, Harley. We'll have to get Donna some more later. The two of us spent our weekend there on Winter's Road in Cornelius and showed Harley downtown Portland. Donna enjoyed Harley immensely. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She loved him. I spent some time pulling weeds in the garden. Two days later, Shiloh and her friends Jennifer and Brent dropped us off on the 101. One of our rides going down the 101 was some tall and thin dorky guy from Minnesota. He had black hair. I always pick up hitchhikers, he said. I picked them up. Even if they're going the opposite way I am, this dude told us. I like him. Yeah, he was he was cool. Miles out of his way, turning around to give us a lift. Somehow the conversation turned to coffee. Boy, I hate truck stop coffee, I said. I love truck stop coffee, dude said. He recited a whole list of famous people from Minnesota. Another ride I remember on the 101 was a guy in a white Ford Ranger smoked out on meth. This man had the eyes of a space creature, and he mumbled something about having to go to his old ladies. He seemed intent on bringing us along, and I said, If you want to go see your old lady, fine. Just drop me off. Harley started talking to this guy about meth, and they were preparing to go on a run for some. Oh, drop me off, I insisted, and he did. I was shocked to see Harley get out with me. I'm proud of you, Harley, I told him and really meant it. Where were you headed to? Heading back to the bear. Oh, okay. Yeah. Harley told me some meth horror stories. Oh, Jesus Christ. Fuck that stuff, I told him. <laughs> yes. Harley and I got local rides and strolled along the coast. I saw tsunami warning zone signs and thought tsunamis didn't happen outside of Asia. We walked along 101 and it was dark when some local police drove up slowly next to us. They wanted to talk to us about something I can't recall. Can I talk to you for a minute? The officer in the passenger seat inquired. Passenger seat? Cop? Yeah, two Ooh. cops in a vehicle. I flash back to the gathering, remembering being schooled how that's a question cops apparently use to detain you. I'm sorry, I'm too tired to talk right now, 
I said as I walked along with Harley and the cops rolled alongside of us in their Crown Vic. They asked where we were coming from, what our destination was, which I told them. One of the cops asked, where are you going to spend the night? Just up ahead and across the street was a hotel. We're going to go get a room over there, I said with authority, hoping I didn't sound nervous. The police laughed a little. You are? One of them asked. How are you two expecting to get a room with no vacancy? Damn, I thought to myself, and suddenly the cruiser rolled ahead of us and pulled into the parking lot to our right. Ah. The cherries and blueberries came on and the spotlights blinded me. Soon enough, there was another cop car, lights and all. They asked all the same questions and wanted ID. Harley didn't have any, and they asked him for his full name. So he stated his Was full name. Was he nervous at all? Harley? Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> not, not even close. Been this no, God, he didn't, even, he didn't even care, dude. He was so drunk anyway. Uh, so he stated his full name. They wanted his social security number and asked him to get rid of the beer he had in his hand. Ah, oh, Jesus. Harley started walking away looking for a recycling container. <laughs> Just put the can in your backpack, Harley, I demanded. Ain't no more room, Johnny, Harley <laughs> let me know. He was pretty drunk and a tad too abrasive to the cops. He lectured them about the importance of recycling. Oh, Jesus they didn't search us and soon realized we weren't the criminals they believed us to be. <laughs> Leave these two alone. Yeah, pretty much, the two stooges, <laughs> hippie stooges. Before they let us go, they asked, where are you guys going to spend the night? I looked south beyond the hotel lights, out past the town, and answered, Well, there's plenty of forest to camp in. How shocked I was when they didn't take Harley with them. The <laughs> cops U-turned and we journeyed past the hotel, auto repair shop, and into the dark forest. Do you remember what town you were in? I don't. Were you in Oregon? or? Oh yeah, we California. were in Oregon at this point. We might, we might have been like... Border? Like border, yeah. We were real close to the border. My weary eyes searched for a trailhead. The forest had an impenetrable wall of thorny shrubs barring anyone from entering. The two of us ventured off the shoulder across a grassy area and to the edge of the evergreens. I was relieved that Harley didn't move away from me as I set my sleeping bag six feet from him. Road dog, road dog Harley was passed out in seconds flat. I laid there for a long while. All kinds of creatures dashed about, and some were large enough to break some heavy branches. Oh, nope. Dakota's statement, you're not exactly on top of the food chain anymore, was heard between my ears, and I shuddered. I roused Harley in the morning, and he protested. I don't know why you gotta get up so early for her, Johnny. The hobo and I had made it to Southern Oregon now. The misty and foggy forest had my attention. These surfers picked us up. A light rain fell and I told them, I'm surprised to see rain this time of year. The one driving the van said, it pretty much always rains along this part of the coast. Misting. Not long after we were back in California and this part of the coast is all these federally protected redwoods. They're the largest living things on earth so silent and dignified. I slowed down my walk and Harley and I drank in the scenery while Harley drank beer. 
Hitchhiking is so normal here that a guy with a pack can get picked up without even sticking out his thumb. We told a few kind logger types, no thank you, we're enjoying the trees too much to accept a ride. After walking for hours, our thumbs went out accompanied by a cardboard sign. A young guy in his 20s pulled over for us. He was a pot-smoking forest ranger and drove us for a while. He talked about getting gas in the next town and he said, I have to pull over first and change my clothes. If the rednecks see me dressed in these clothes, they'll kill me. He said this so casually. Why would they want to kill you? Was he in his I asked outfit? With, yeah, he was in his forest ranger uh, yeah, uniform. Yeah. yeah, I asked with hesitation. Because these redwoods are now federally protected, the local lumber mills lose a great deal of money. There's a lot of out-of-work loggers, and they don't like federal anything. Harley and I reached Oric, a modest town with abundance of touristy shops. I love. I know it was, it was a cool town. Fucking cool. The beach is gorgeous. We sat on the beach and watched the otters play in the Pacific. Harley and I talked about our high school days. Yeah, I know kind of kid you was, Johnny. <laughs> you was one of those Dungeons and Dragons oh, club kids. <laughs> Harley talked down to me as he hammered back his beers. Yep. Me and my friends make fun of your kind all the time. Oh, fuck. I tried to explain to this hardhead idiot that I wasn't that uncool. Just almost. How, Har how old do you think... No, I can't think of his name. Harley was. like in Just actuality. a few years older. Oh, okay. Yeah, he, he's like probably born in like 70. 40, 69, 60, 70. 50. At the time, yeah. So I tried to explain to him I wasn't one of those kids. Harley didn't grasp it. Yeah, I know you're kind. Ha, 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 ha. I had this pig-headed drunk laughing at me, and I was insulted and furious. I ultimately realized that my kind made fun of Harley's kind, and now I was in hysterics. Harley wanted to know as the smile ceased on his face. What are you laughing at? I caught my breath and I said, Yeah, that was me, Harley. We slept on Oryx's wide beach. Like usual, I woke up before Harley. I decided to stroll along that foggy stretch of coast and let him sleep in. When I p returned to our camp spot, Harley was gone. Where the hell did he go? I wondered aloud. I passed some Mexicans going towards the beach as I was leaving it. He wanted to go get beard, Johnny. I said, I'm looking for a short guy with beard and dreads. He has a big blue pack to them. They didn't speak enough English. I went into a little cafe where we had dinner the night before, wanting Harley and breakfast. I wanted to drink immensely at this point, and being around Harley all the time wasn't helping. Oh, hell no. This was all circulating through my brain as I headed up the Bald Hills Road. This road was the quickest way to the 96, which led to the Salmon River Road and the Bear. All of the locals, especially that ponytailed forest ranger that picked us up hitchhiking, said, whatever you do, don't hitch on the Bald Hills Road. It's all tourists from SoCal and they never pick up hitchhikers. 
You do not want to get stuck up there. I would have listened to the locals, except that, except that would have involved a lot more miles and going down and around, and that seemed ridiculous to me. The Bald Hills Road was familiar to me, and I realized that Schwammy and Ferrandino had brought me up there in 2002 on my first West Coast trip. I want to see the Redwoods, I had cried to them. Plus, 90% of all the car commercials must have been filmed on this road. <laughs> Once I'd gotten oh, past sorry. the noisy lumber mill on the edge of Oric, I became nearly engulfed by these megatrees. Absolute silence is sound. The road climbed up forever, and the trees were so tall, I couldn't see the tops of them. The little redwoods are the size of the tallest oaks here in the east. I walked for hours in the quiet, which I broke at random with my impression of a dog barking, or I'd clap my hands. Sometimes I broke out and sang heartily. The residents at Black Bear had taught me, make sure you're making enough noise while walking through a wilderness area. Black Bears, baby. The last thing you'd want to do is come up behind an un unsuspecting mama bear, elk, or a cougar. You'd oh. be dead. Fuck the elk. They're nasty. Oh, they are. They're, they're really scary. Occasionally, I would hear a large animal crashing through the forest, and I would have to put my trail mix bag between my knees and clap my hands loudly. It was raining fairly hard, yet underneath those trees it was a delicate mist. The only place getting an almost direct hit of precipitation was the center of the road. I had walked for hours and was getting tired. I put out my thumb. The SoCal Taurus stared at me with trepidation as they motored by doing 20 miles an hour. A few locals sped by in their pickups. I longed for a stunning view at the Redwood Creek Scenic Overlook Point. This was advertised at different spots along the road designated for the tourists. Little gravel parking lots with hiking trails. I saw that most of these people, uh, I saw that most of these people just have a boring snapshot taken of themselves next to some behemoth tree. I reached the scenic overlook point and all I saw was fog. Afternoon was becoming evening and the locals warnings about not hitchhiking the Bald Hills Road resounded even more. I heard tires crunching on the now gravel road and I stuck out my thumb. Miraculously, I now had a lift. The 83 Chevy pickup stopped and I started opening the passenger door when the man shouted, no, 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 get in the back. Damn, I felt like an idiot. Thank you for the lift. I'm sorry about that. The man ignored me and turned to his 10-year-old son and said, I'm tired of driving, you take the wheel. What? The son protested in a whine. Dad, I don't wanna drive. The dad got out of the cab, walked around to the passenger side as the son reluctantly slid behind the wheel. Oh, Jesus. Boy, that son could drive. I was half tempted to tap on the back window and plead, let me out. The boy was doing 60 or 70. <gasps> Oh, he's flying. Are you fucking kidding? Oh, I'm not kidding. You. I, I don't uh, doubt it because I've been in the car. Ass, with... dude. I was, I, yeah, I was, I was scared. 
The redwoods gave way to the Douglas fir and madrone trees interspersed among dry grassy space. Oh, madrones. There were herds of elk and the baby black bears scaled trees in fears of the truck. Without that ride, I might have taken a week to reach the 96. The Bald Hills Road ends at the town of Wetchapek. Wetchapek. I thank my drivers again. I hopped out of the truck bed, and there was Harley. <gasps> he was sitting on the curb, and I'd forgotten about my anger for him. Get the heck out of here. Yo, Harley! I hadn't seen him all day, but it felt like 10 years. Harley had a big smile and said, Hey, Johnny! I didn't mention how angry I was at him in that morning. Because you can't be angry anymore. Uh, of course not. I went for a stroll along the beach this morning to let you sleep. Two hours later, you were gone, I told him. I hadn't seen him all day, but it felt like 10 years. Harley had a big smile and said, Hey, Johnny! I didn't mention how angry I was at him that morning. I went for a stroll on the beach this morning to let you sleep. Two hours later, you were gone, I told him. I got up and I figured you went and got breakfast, so I went looking for you, Harley said. Oh, well, I thought you'd gotten a head start on me, so I headed on out of Oric, knowing I'd see you eventually, man. I said this with a grin. Harley end up, ended up, quote, kicking it around the town for a while and found somebody going over to Wetchapak. Harley had gotten farther than me without being in a hurry. The two of us walked north on 96 for a while. The tortoise and the rabbit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this man picked us up. The man who picked us up with maybe the worst B.O. ever. To make the situation worse, he had the heat on in the truck cab, and he gave me a headache accompanied by nausea. If I wasn't tired of all the thumbing and sleeping on the side of the road, I would have requested to be dropped off. We got let off at Soames Bar. <gasps> Everybody around there knows Black Bear Ranch, and soon enough we were at the bottom of the Black Bear Trail, five miles from home. The two of us spent the, that night halfway up the trail between two massive fallen dug firs. Their trunks must have been four feet in diameter. The forest was noisy and my sleep was thin. I looked at the indefatigable galaxy with its brightness. On both sides of these fallen firs, large animals hunted and played. Serious discomfort gripped me, and I remembered something else Dakota said. Don't ever worry about dying. You can't control when or how you're going to die. Timestamp. It's your time when it's your time. After that, I fell asleep. How relieved Harley and I were to be back. There was an abundance of visitors to the ranch, mostly visiting for long weekends from San Fran or Southern Oregon. One guy looked exactly like John Ritter, except with a beard and long hair. Like a fool, I asked him, hey man, has anyone ever told you that you look just like John Ritter? He laughed good-naturedly and replied, of course. I chatted with this guy for a while one morning at breakfast and he told me about how he got to know the bear. How did you learn about this place if you're from Philadelphia, he asked. My buddy Ishan was about all I could reply, and he cracked up. Ishan? I remember he was here when I lived here a few years ago, oh, and he wouldn't help me do any work. He told me, I'm drumming for world peace, man. Oh, this guy loved laughing at Schwammy.
And it's funny because then I asked Schwammy about this guy. Like, I described him and, oh, yeah, he remembered him. Oh, yeah, he didn't like him. And I fuck him. And he didn't think I was laughing about what the guy said. Of course, he didn't find it funny, you know. Tora, a stripper from Orange County, arrived one afternoon in her white VW bus camper. She had two friendly dogs with her, one of whom was dying of cancer. She was flirty and definitely sexy. Dan from Washington wasted no time climbing on top of her, and soon enough, the two of them were inseparable. Dan admired Dakota and often tried to impress him, the way a younger brother tries to do with his older brother. I believe that Dakota might have had some respect for him if he had a sense of humility and a better work ethic. Dakota was like a big brother, not only because he was the size of a mountain, but because he knew about things Dan and I didn't. Dakota knew how to hunt and was knowledgeable about carpentry. Yeah, Dakota busted my balls calling me Junior, except with his mimicry of a Philly accent, it sounded like Junior. I quit trying to school him on the difference between the Philadelphia and the New York accents. Dakota said things like, we're going to make a man out of you yet. You'll be so strong when you leave here. You'll be so muscular, you won't even have a neck. Dakota would be cutting me up and Dan would say shit too. Dakota would verbally squash Dan, leaving him hurt. My buddy Dan Bright showed up one afternoon. We remembered each other from when Ferrandino and I were there in November of 02 to drop Schwam off for the Bears' famous Thanksgiving. He was a cool guy with a fantastic sense of humor and we got along great. Dan and I had similar tastes in music. We're both conversationalists. He turned me on to the Jerry Garcia band, who I never really listened to. Dan is a former hunter turned vegetarian, becoming meat-free when he had a bear carcass hung up in his garage and, quote, it looked way too human to me. Dan couldn't eat meat after that. That would do it. He upset Hannah and Dakota by just moving into the cabin in which Danny and Nevis stayed in. The Spider Dome? Oh. Me and Johnny tried to burn that down. Yeah, that's another story. Okay, so Dakota said he's not a resident. He can't just move in there because it's empty. This is something we have to vote on. I voted in favor of him getting the cabin and becoming a resident. I can't remember the name of the cabin which Dan moved into. They all had names. Washington Dan was furious. He wanted Tora to get that cabin, saying, I was planning to have sleepovers there. Tora ended up leaving because of the no dogs allowed in the main house rule. Her dog with cancer hadn't had much time left, and she wanted the dog with her all the time, including when she was in the kitchen. Can't we just make an exception? I'd ask at dinner one evening. A resounding no was the answer. The only thing which belonged to the individual there were the things they brought in with them. One morning I referred to a coffee mug as, quote, my mug, and Dakota asked with strength, hey, who said it was yours? Dan had an expensive espresso maker from Italy and was willing to donate it to the ranch. We could bring the machine down to the general store in Soames Bar and get a percentage of the drinks they sell using our machine. 
Dan also had an interest interest in setting up a glass blowing studio at the bear. We had some people coming up with a school bus equipped with a mobile glass blowing studio. Dan asked us, you know how many people along this river would buy black bear glass? Everyone figured a significant number since the Salmon River community was a tight-knit one. He had an affluent friend named Al who lived on Lake Tahoe and he had a bunch of work to be done. The big project of the summer was new, new construction of a canning kitchen. Dan's friend Al was interested in donating some windows for the new building. Dan Bright and Slimy Dan left in Slimy Dan's red 78 Ford F-150 for Lake Tahoe and Dakota ended our crow problem. I tended the garden near the main house and plucked apples, peaches, and pears from the respective trees. Harley fixed stuff with Dakota and weed whacked all the waist high dead grass around all the buildings, the main house, cabins, barn, and the workshops. One of our weekend visitors was appalled at how nobody knew how to work the fire hose. He also said, all the tall grass is a serious fire danger. Get rid of it. Hannah tended her children. Riddler and Alira spent a lot of their days over in the meadow garden. Those two and slimy Washington Dan were almost their own community. Troll would come and go. He was a real mystery. Several people said, Troll's on another level. Dan Bright's friends showed up in the school bus just as promised. They were a good-natured group of hippies. The guy with the bus had a wonderful, wonderful tales of traveling around India. At some point, I hiked the Black Bear Trail to the asphalt. From there, I hitched down to Pat's Organic Farm near Orleans. Before Nevis left, she told us how, quote, we had an excellent relationship with Pat doing a work trade exchange. It would be nice if some of you would maybe go down there and repair the relationship that's been neglected and damaged. Much to everyone's satisfaction, I volunteered. After spending a whole day thumbing and walking, I reached the farm at twilight. He was a short, bearded man with dark eyes. I'm John from Black Bear. Nevis asked me, to come down. Are you Neil? I fucked up his name. I didn't feel comfortable. My name's Pat. I don't kneel to anyone. He was intimidating, and with hesitation I said, I'm interested in doing a work trade. Okay, that's fine, Pat said, while looking at me with distrust. We start at sunrise. If you come any later, we won't need you. I would have ran the hell off this guy's property and never looked back, but the residents back at the ranch were counting on me. Thank you. I'll be here in the morning, I said, and I then speed walked up the driveway. I attempted slumber in the woods across the road. The animals kept waking me up. It sounded like they were having a fun time, chasing each other around and rolling down the hill which lay behind my head. Whenever these creatures sounded as if they were coming too close to me, I did my best impression of a tough dog and I would pulse my mag light at them. I was following advice. Let the animals know you're there. You carried that thing with you? My mag light? That your dad gave you? Yeah, dude. I did. 
I would, you gonna I would, beat them all? No, I would do, like flash it like a strobe light. I figured if they're gonna if they're gonna like attack me and kill me, the light and my little knife that I had wasn't gonna do shit. But I was hoping to just they'd leave me alone. Like I'll let them know I'm here, I'm yeah. here, and they they did. They left me alone. They got away once I started making noise and flashing my light. They did. They got away from me. Um, Go fuck yourself. Yeah, they they left me alone. So that's what everybody said. That's what you do. That they, those are the people that get attacked usually in the wilderness. Those are the people that get attacked. They sneak up on an animal. Okay, so I was across the street. I said, I'll be here in the morning. Um, so they said, bears don't like dogs. So I made bark, barking noises. Okay, so the morning came, and I rolled up my sleeping bag. My breakfast was the same as my dinner. Peanut butter sandwich on white bread, trail mix, and water. I headed out of the woods. Did not want to go to the farm, but I did. The lights in the kitchen were on, and I quietly knocked on the kitchen door. Good morning. Come on in. Pat welcomed me with a smile and offered me a cup of coffee. Turned out that Pat was friendly, and he had an excellent sense of humor. I thought to myself, he must have had a bad day yesterday. I was sent to weed the long rows of bell pepper plants with, the, with his sons. Naturally, they weeded at a pace that was dizzying like a DVD on 4X speed. The wife came upon me and demanded to know, how much are we paying you? I looked up at her and I said, I'm not being paid, I'm work trading. She looked at me with severity and said, good, it'd be a waste of money to pay you. The family fed me a delicious lunch and dinner. Jesus. Oh yeah, she was nasty. Yeah. In the evening after dinner, Pat said, we have a trailer you can sleep in. Where'd you go last night? Pat asked me. Over in the woods across the street, I replied. Pat laughed and said, you didn't have to do that. You could have slept here, <laughs> he said cheerfully. Right. I slept in a trailer from the 80s, a beige prowler with orange carpeting. Ooh. It was in acceptable shape, even though it was littered with mice droppings. My second and last day there was just like the first, foggy in the morning, mooing cows and pulling weeds as quick as I could. At lunch, we discussed organic farming. The rule used to be a farmer had to be pesticide for seven years now, and it's, for seven years, now it's three. One of the sons told me in reference to the new USDA certification. The, they all agreed that the USDA certification was impatient. Oh, cool, good. Somebody found our podcast, which we're happy to report. Hold on, there's one message. Okay, Brian's leaving a message. We're reading the rest of the Black Bear story right now. So then they knocked back the... Knocked it back. The, the, the certific USDA certification. And they all, all the farmers agreed that the certification was impatient. After lunch, Pat and I packed boxes of produce for various destinations... Farmers markets, CSAs, and grocery stores. They told me at the bear before I left, someone will pick you up in a few days. Slimy Dan and Troll showed up in one afternoon. Hey, city boy, Dan said with his trademark smile of sleaze. The two Dans had returned from Lake Tahoe, and they wanted Washington Dan to come down and give me a hand and also pick me up. 
Instead of work trading alongside me, he went down to camp and party on the river. He told Troll, I have to go pick up John and some produce. Troll, Dan, and I picked, packed a bounty of bell peppers, hot peppers, tomatoes, and some other vegetables. Pat gave us more than I expected. When the residents found out that Dan didn't work with me, they were mad. He probably made fun of me for working there in New, or in New in Orleans like he did back at the Bear. Dan Bright claimed that Slimy Dan, quote, didn't fucking work much at Al's and that some fucking money at Al's house went missing the night Dan was alone there. Oh, shit. Dan Bright insisted repeatedly he fucking embarrassed me. Al wouldn't lie about this. Dakota and the two Dans had a private meeting in the main house, which ended with yelling and slimy Dan from Washington leaving Black Bear. How wonderful. I moved into the crow's nest, or, quote, Dan's cabin, as I'd mistakenly referred to it. How'd you get up there? What, to the cabin? The crow's nest? That's a good one. Yeah, that's, I don't, because Dan moved out. Yeah, but so then it became no mine. Wanted, no one else wanted to move No, in. they were like, it's yours, dude. Wow. Yeah. You must have been a celebrity. Yeah, I guess so. Um, all of us had a, all of us had a canning marathon or movie. They displayed fondness for using the word movie as a verb, not only at the commune, but in California. The waxy cardboard boxes with the work trade goods were stacked onto the main house table and all the canning preparation surfaces were scrubbed with near boiling soapy water. The mason jars, lids, and rings were sterilized by being boiled. I was cutting up hot peppers and I had to pee. Three or four minutes after pissing, my crotch felt warm. Five or six minutes after I urinated, my dick felt like it was a hot dog on the grill. Harley cracked up as I squirmed in discomfort. What's wrong with you, Johnny? Lecturing him, Dan, and Riddler, quote, not to forget to also wash their hands before they pee if they handled the hot peppers. I forgot to wash my hands not only before I emptied my bladder, but also previous to rubbing my eye. Oh. Harley laughed until he cried. Johnny, not so smart. Oh, yeah, dude. You know, of course, I washed my hands afterward, not before. Oh, God. At some point during the summer, I was alone on the ranch by myself for maybe four days. The residents had all gone down to the Salmon River community to work during this time, clearing brush for wildfire prevention, carpentry, or possibly farm work. I haven't written about how this place is haunted. There are lots of ghosts, or as some of the locals call them, Hooter Nicky stories. I immediately felt that the black bear was home to spirits and recall saying so to Brian when we dropped off Schwam back in November of 02. My second voyage to the bear reaffirmed my feeling that restless souls were about. I'd set up my easel to draw near the front porch steps of the main house. I started on a drawing and I heard a young woman politely clearing her throat, the type used to grab attention. <clears throat> Turning around, looking towards the front porch steps, I saw nobody. I went back to my drawing. 
Second time, she cleared her throat with a more resolution. <clears throat> some woman had to be there. Was Hannah or Lyra or some female guest back on the ranch unbeknownst to me? Oh, John's going fucking sci-fi on me. The throat clearing had come from either the front porch steps or the porch. But I looked around the front of the main house and over into the garden. I believe in ghosts. Still, I'm always ready to rule out spiritual entities. Might be a ghost, I thought to myself. Is it the old lady? Resumed sketching. <coughs> she cleared her throat with fury. <coughs> Excuse me. I thought of Don, John Daggett's daughter, who mysteriously disappeared 100 years ago. She had fallen in love with a man who worked her father's mine, a man her father disapproved of. Some locals said that the young lovers eloped, and others said Mr. Daggett had them both killed. I put my pencil onto my easel and returned to the steps. I'm sorry, I can't see you, but I can hear you. If you have anything to say, hopefully I'll hear it. I stood there with my eyes fixated on the stairs, concentrating intently. I heard no more and I witnessed nothing. That must have been, quote, the young woman in the Victorian dress gliding across the kitchen floor, end quote, that nope. Dan Bright saw one day during lunch. Uh, you know what I mean? uh. Another haunted experience happened one afternoon while drawing on the front porch. I had my easel set up there and I left for a moment to take a leak. I came back to the porch and my easel was gone. I scanned around and I couldn't locate it. I found my easel and sketchbook in the main house dining room. I listened to what sounded like a teenage boy singing a song one evening. Something about this sounded otherworldly. I mentioned this to Dakota and he said, cougars and heat sound a lot like humans. Riddler and Alira claimed the meadow garden had, quote, Chinese migrant spirits working the land wearing those pointy round hats. Alira heard, quote, the laughter of children and a little boy's voice saying hello. Hannah spoke of hearing Chinese or hearing men speaking Chinese, singing music in Chinese and playing on stringed instruments. Someone new to Black Bear a few years ago riddled those who shared tales of ghosts. One day, he was packing up his belongings to leave. He had claimed to have seen, quote, a gang of Chinese migrants coming down the driveway, mining tools in hand, and was moving out. Some woman was supposedly strangled in a cabin which was over near the pond. The cabin mysteriously burned down, and any women camping near where that cabin once stood reported Quote, being awoken in the middle of the night feeling like somebody was strangling them. Me and Johnny went uh, skinny dipping at the pond. Yeah, I did. I, I was with broke you. down. Yeah, finally I was like, all right. Dude, that was a, it was so cold. It was spring fit. I know. I almost became a nudist because of that summer. Oh, man. I really did. Got it. And I mean, I'm uptight about being naked and all of a sudden I'm like wandering around with like no clothes on. Yeah, me and Johnny. That was a strange experience. Only at the Black Bear. All right. So I mentioned previously how Riddler and Alira weren't tight with anybody at the ranch. Riddler wanted to use money from the ranch fund to buy cat food for the cats, of which we all disapproved. 
Hannah said one afternoon, Riddler was staring at her through the back door window in the rear of the main house, and quote, his skin was green. What? She and her children felt stalked by Riddler. Yes. The handful of cats hung around the main house and would get under your feet. Get out of here, motherfuckers! I yelled at them one evening because they almost tripped me as I carried a heavy pot with food in it. Riddler drilled into me with his vortex eyes and said, Hey, man, don't yell at the animals that way. Harley threatened to, quote, put him in a stew pot. And Riddler and Alira, the gothic lovers, really didn't like that. <laughs> the gothic. Yeah, yeah. I think Dan Bright nicknamed him that. Oh, Jesus Christ. Alira detested Harley from the beginning. Oh, hell yeah. And now she was almost growling at him. I met her for one day. I didn't yeah, like her. You were like evil. Yeah, exactly. Our guests and residents, Harley, me, Dan Bright, Hannah, Dakota, their kids, Mayan Ocean, and sometimes Troll, would be having a beautiful breakfast or lunch together. This group had matters to, dis matters to discuss and things to joke about. Alira would come into the kitchen, say nothing. She'd narrow her eyes and tighten her mouth in hatred. Certain symbols had been drawn on the main house walls, which unnerved Hannah and Dan, who accused the gothic lovers of devil worship. Dan claimed one night Alira was cooking dinner and chanting over the food, and he asked her, what are you saying? Dan claimed Alira was, quote, calling her people. I had a t-shirt with a grotesque cartoon character on it posing the question, am I in the mood for evil or coffee? This wasn't a shirt I bought. It was a gift I didn't like. For whatever reason, I packed it when I left for the West. Alira's eyes lit up when she saw the disturbing t-shirt and she smiled. Alira complimented my disconcerting present and I said, you can have it and she traded me a Save the Forests tea. I told Dan about our trade. Why the hell would Alira want some creepy shirt? I hate it. I mean, the guy on there debates whether to be evil or not. I don't like that. Dan looked at me and said quietly, because you're of the light. Riddler and Alira had been in some loud arguments too. I heard the others discuss their disturbing quarrels and various unfavorable actions. The trap set, set to catch the civet cat had been sabotaged and disregarded outside in the dirt. A civet cat looks like a ferret and they're black and white. These critters dined on food in the main house larder and we voiced concern about disease. Besides, who the hell wants some ferret-like animal around your food? Elira didn't know why we were hostile towards the civet cat. Dakota had become terribly ill around this time. Elira was largely suspected of putting something in Dakota's food. As a community, we discussed asking the Goths to move out. Dan stated loudly, This place is a home and it has to be protected. This conversation occurred the day before Hannah and Dakota planned a long weekend visit to some friend's house. They wanted to wait a while before asking Riddler and Alira to leave. Supposedly, Dan from Washington had secured work and a place to live within the Salmon River Black Bear community. He was saying disparaging things about Dan Bright and Dakota, befriending their enemies on the river, and earning respect among certain Black Bear elders. On some of our trips off the ranch to town, Dan Bright and I spoke to people about Washington Dan. 
A few individuals thought it was suspicious on how he abruptly departed. I think Dakota wanted to go out to the community and share his and Dan Bright's reasoning beyond, behind asking Washington Dan to leave the bear. He felt he had to discuss the Riddler and Lear situation as well since they were friends of Washington Dan. Dakota didn't want to be painted as a tyrant. Hannah and Dakota left Black Bear. I can't recall what the hell I was doing, but I walked past the main house and I heard Riddler screaming at Alira, Don't talk to me that way! I found myself shaken. Had to let Dan and Harley know. The next morning, Dan and I smudged the ranch with Sage, intending to drive evil out of that special place. Dan instructed me, we must ask the good spirits in and demand the evil ones leave. The evil, they were. Hey, they were. That's what the two of us did. You had to tell them? I mean, well, they, they kept saying, you know, that Riddler was, like, under her spell. And I think it was probably true. Well. I think he probably would have been okay if he was away from her, but he, he was, was a, a creep. guy. I think he was okay. I think he just was going down a bad path or something. Anyway, so we put Bob Marley on the boombox. We smudged the main house. Riddler and Alira took a day trip somewhere, so we smudged the cabin where they stayed. These motherfuckers sent them down to my house in yeah. San Francisco. Yeah. Motherfuckers. Inside the cabin, Dan was shocked at how the creeps covered up a joyful mural with dark purple velvet. Fucking Satan worshippers like dark velvet, Dan said repeatedly. We took smoldering sage sticks over to the meadow garden and asked the good spirits to stay. We shouted, evil spirits, get out of here. That morning, we were smudging the main house. Jerry band blared out of the speakers. Alira slid into the kitchen with her trademark expression of disgust. Her nose twisted up at the smell of the sage, and she eyed the boombox with hatred. What is that smell? She wanted to know. Dan and I told her, we're driving e evil spirits away. And it worked. Later on that afternoon, they argued again, and we had this impromptu meeting in the driveway. Dan was the aggressor, telling them that their antisocial behavior and arguing wasn't acceptable. He encouraged their departure. Through tears, Alira cried, we have nowhere to go. And Riddler talked about how their camper wasn't too reliable. We needed to repair it before we leave for good. That's why we've spent days off the ranch working so we could afford repairs. I pitied them and felt that Dan was mean-spirited. I feel maybe you two ought to consider leaving here and find somewhere to get counseling if you plan on staying a couple. I said this, and Alira cried even more. Dan had relatives who worked at some busy marina, and he gave Riddler their names and the marina's location. He said, you tell them I sent you, and they'll hire you guys at a good rate. Riddler and Alira didn't have any extra money for gas or food. Dan softened a tad, and he told them to take food from the main house, and he offered them some money. Whatever you need to help you move on, he said. I spoke to our gothic lovers with concern, Dan with some force, and Harley blurted out, You two got to go! That was the magic excl exclamation. Nothing to be said after that. God bless your soul, Harley. Exactly. 
Riddler and Alira packed up their camper that afternoon and were gone the following day. Hannah and Dakota returned, shocked and delighted to hear about Riddler and Alira's departure. The time had come for us to get the windows for the canning kitchen that Dakota was to build. Dan and I hit the Black Bear Trail, hiking five miles to the asphalt. Dan might have appeared out of shape, but he walked rapidly. I could barely keep up with him, and I walked fast. Jesus, slow down, I called out to no avail. Naturally, we got picked up almost instantly. One of our first rides to the Soames Bar General Store, where the Salmon River Road meets the 96, and we stocked up on some supplies. I bought some trail mix with chocolate and bottled water. Dan was inside the store, and these Indians pulled up. They could have been Yurok, Hoopa, some other nation, I don't recall. They were drunk, and the guy behind the wheel had just been fired. His friends went into the store, and this guy hounded me. My boss is a white man just like you, he yelled. I stood there with cautious silence. He proceeded to tell me how much he hated the white man. I really hate rednecks, but you don't look like a redneck he said with bleary eyes of accusation. I didn't say much, but the little bit I did say showed that I wasn't from Northern California. Where are you from, he snapped. And I told him about my road trip, and now I was living at Black Bear. The intoxicated Indian didn't look so menacing after he heard this. You're a hippie? Good. They're the only kind of white men I like hippies with that said his buddies came out with their beer and the driver told his friends i was okay up until that point i wanted to shave my beard and cut my hair for i hadn't done either since i'd left philly now i thought i needed to buy me a peace symbol necklace the two of us hitched the 96 south to the 299 west we were going to dan's friend renee's house in arcada the home of Humboldt State University. She had a 1990-something Ford Explorer, which Dan arranged for us to borrow because there were windows waiting for us to get at the Home Depot in Reading. Renee and her son Norman lived in a small house in Arcata with Sarah and her son, whose name I forget. Sarah was a tweaker whose beautiful face was deteriorating from them. Her nine-year-old son wailed, I'm hungry, Mom, at dinner, to which he re she replied, you ate, you ate lunch. Dan and I fixed him some dinner and gave him instructions on how to cook a grilled cheese. Renee was still reasonably attractive, even though a difficult life had ground her up. She was a tough woman, loud, unrefined, and cared so much for her son, Norman. Are you from the East Coast? I asked her. No, I was born and raised in California, she told me. I swear, it's as if you were from South Philly or South Jersey. You have the don't give me any bullshit attitude, which is a compliment, I added. She laughed and repeated, I was born and raised in California. During that weekend, some drama occurred. 
Saturday afternoon, I relaxed on the tiny front porch reading when the police came. They stated who they were looking for and they asked who I was. I said, I'm a friend of Renee's friend visiting for a couple of days and showed them my driver's license. Can we search the house? The cops asked. And I, and I replied, I can't give permission because I don't live here. What the fuck do you keep getting yourself into, I'm Johnny? telling you. The two officers were obviously frustrated with my answer, but they left. Sarah and Renee had some big fight over something. I don't know what. I think Sarah was stealing from Renee. When Renee and Dan returned to the house, I said, the cops were here and wanted to look around, and Renee's eyes bulged with fear. You didn't let those assholes in here, did you? She asked with a shaky voice. I told them I couldn't since I don't live here. With that, she breathed a sigh of relief. <clears throat> Renee turned on the TV. Sarah was a professional meth freak who installed security cameras with audio in front of the tiny place. The three of us watched my interaction with law enforcement. Dan and Renee admired the way I handled the cops. Renee, being the rough and tumble woman she was, called Sarah's cell phone repeatedly, leaving messages peppered with four-letter words. I thought to myself, I'm not on the main line anymore. Renee was getting calls back from a guy fresh out of Pelican Bay. Oh. Ominous calls implying violence. Which is a bad, bad prison. Yeah, yeah, that's what I, I was told. Um, the police came back that night, and Dan and I hid in the garage, converted into a bedroom. Dan was nervous. If those pigs come in here, my name is John. You got that? He asked me in a forceful hush. Yeah, dude, I hear you. Was my answer. Nervous. My brother's name is John. I'll get arrested if you call me Dan, he said. I assured Dan I wouldn't screw up if the police came in. John and Dan, Dan and John, John yeah. and Dan, Dan and I forget, John, John I forget what the cops could have picked them up for. The police left. They never entered the place. Renee had some friend of hers come over to spend the night for security. A quadruple-sized black man. Damn. He could have fought anybody and just squashed them effortlessly. He slept that night on the little sofa in the living room with a Louisville slugger which looked like a toothpick in his hands. Thankfully, there wasn't any trouble. I was grateful to leave Arcata, and so was Dan. We took the 299 east to Reading and picked up the windows at Home Depot. There was a traffic jam the way back on 299 east. Finally, we saw why. Some vehicles struck a pretty good-sized bear who laid on the shoulder, convulsing in agony. Mm -hmm. Seeing that was so upsetting, I could have cried. The lumber for the cannon kitchen came from the Klamath National Forest. Dakota took me with him to where these impressive Douglas firs stood and fell two of them. These firs had to be three feet in diameter, 150 feet tall, and there was a whooshing sound sensation which I felt in my chest as they dropped. With, when, when each of those behemoth evergreens came speeding to the ground, some of the nearby firs in their path were sheared of limbs on one side and they shivered and quaked. Evergreen needles flurried down with pulverized wood dust and the birds chirped in distress. I had read interviews where loggers I'd read interviews with loggers before on the, quote, rush of cutting down trees, especially the big ones. Previously, I felt they were heartless for those type of remarks. 
Come on, Dakota, cut some more down, I said with vindictive joy, cruelty, to which he laughed. Some of our visitors looked uneasy at my declarations of timber-felling joy. A drunken Harley used the ranch's weary suburban to drag the logs down the driveway. Dakota expressed concern and disapproval over Harley's drinking. Many a time that summer, I had to defend Harley. He's a professional drunk. It's all right. Harley was distraught that the Suburban's hood wouldn't close, and he took to jumping on top of it, slipped and fell. He wouldn't follow Dakota's direction at the most efficient way to move the logs, and Dakota finally had to chase him from the task at hand. Kara's boyfriend, Boone, came up to the bear to gather the logs. He ran his own sawmill. Dakota referred to, referred to as Boone as the luckiest man on the river. Boone delivered our timber and the construction began. Dakota, Dan, Harley, and I went to work on building a kitchen. This was Dakota's project and the three of us listened to his instruction. Harley had to be subdued. He was sometimes trying to override Dakota who protested, he's like a little fucking kid. The boombox played spearhead and cake. Dakota and Dan were being too kind. Man, this isn't a real job site, I protested. We need to litter the ground with coffee cups. Dakota started snapping out. We need, oh, we need Dakota to snap out and tell us to hurry the fuck up. Goddamn guys I worked with to throw tools. Somebody's gotta throw tools. Dakota and Dan kept hammering and figuring. Whenever Dakota asked me to do this or do that, I said, you're the boss of this job. I was having fun aggravating them. Harley chuckled. I believe he knew what I was describing. I made another comment about Dakota being the boss to which he yelled, there's no bosses. We come to live here because we don't want a boss. If you don't like it, then go back to the East Coast. I apologized and we all had lunch. Renee's 90-something Explorer had to be returned to Arcata, and Dan planned to hitch down to Los Angeles afterwards to collect his girlfriend, Victoria. He invited me to come along, and of course I said, hell yeah. The plan after that was to go to Lake Tahoe and get Dan's friend Al to come visit Black Bear. Dan had me all excited, telling me of the beautiful mamas that will come back up to the bear with us. There was a genuine zeal in the air, and it was ruined one afternoon. Monkey, the king of arrogant dickheads, appeared. Monkey demanded to see Dan. He was angered about Riddler and Alir's leaving and also sleazy Washington Dan. Oh, Monkey had zero interest in what I had to say. Who the hell is this Harley? King Arrogant wanted to know. Dan showed up and he went with Monkey and Troll to the barn for a conversation. They talked for a while, and as Monkey jumped into his F-350 truck, he was saying some shit about, quote, you guys better be gone. That evening, Dakota returned from wherever he'd gone for the day, and Dan told him about our visit. Dan was shook up with tears in his eyes. He told Dakota and I all the threats Monkey made against Dan and Harley's lives, saying, Quote, I'm coming back for blood. I'm the enforcer for the family, and you guys had better not be here. I shouted, I've met guys like him before. He's an asshole. Dakota did his impression of me with a grin, 
caricaturizing the way I said asshole. Dan and I left the bear and drove over to Petey and Gaba's to tell them what went down. Gaba demanded to know, what's all this I hear about people being driven from their homes? Petey asked, whatever happened to loving and tolerating others? How stupid. These elder hippies discounted our fears of an armed and drunken monkey coming back for blood. Dan told them about the canning kitchen project and how the two of us have got windows and they expressed gratitude. Again, Dan said, he threatened me and showed me a shotgun in his truck. Gaba didn't say much and Petey laughed a little saying, I'll talk to Monk with a wave of his hand and a smile. Dan and I headed south. Just outside of Orleans, a female Indian had her thumb out and Dan stopped. She was loaded and hopeless. I'm the last of my kind, she slurred, barely alive as she drank beers in the back seat. I forget which nation of Indians she hailed from, but she was the last one of pure blood. The others had either white blood or Indian blood from another nation. Renee and her son Norman moved into another house in a better section of Arcata. Since I was feeling somewhat homesick, watching Rocky on TV was an extra treat. Dan wouldn't let me enjoy Rocky, claiming the movie was racist. I looked, there's a motherfucker just said all that? I looked, yeah, I looked at Dan as he sat on the opposite end of the couch. And he said, that's, I said, that's ridiculous, racist. Dan scowled at me and replied something about, quote, the black champion having to be defeated by a white man and some other intellectualized nonsense. I had to defend this film and Philly. He insisted that Rocky was a white supremacy film. And I said in a raised voice, no way. This is a wonderful story of inspiration. I continued, people everywhere love this film, but in the Philadelphia area, this movie is sacred. White, black, everyone loves Rocky. Hey. Dan wasn't changing his view, so I ended up switching the channel. Dan had been arguing with Victoria on the phone. His mood soured. I said, Dan, you ought to go alone to LA and Tahoe and see Victoria. Dan and Renee dropped me off at the on-ramp for 299 West. July 14th, we're recording again because it's so hot during the day. We have to take a break. Yes, we can't do it during the Too day. hot. Okay, so. Too hot for. Back to story time. Shorts. Dan and Renee dropped me off at the on-ramp for 299 West. Dan gave me this advice. Don't hitchhike at night and sleep out of view, never near the road. Some traveler could come along during the night and kick you in the head to rob you. I walked the 299 all day waving at other hitchhikers going east. I ate my lunch of white bread, peanut butter sandwiches, and trail mix. Some dopes in a large Chevy truck sped by, blasting the horn and screaming out the window at me. That afternoon, an Indian man gave me a lift, the same guy who picked me up on the Bald Hills Road. Okay. Yeah, nope. He said, I'll let you off outside of Wetchpeck. Our dialogue was innocent enough for a while. The man told me of the history of his people's nation and their modern day problems. 
We Indians lived fine until the white man came along, he stated with ice in his voice. You ain't getting more white than you is. He asked me about religion, so I told him. I was brought up Catholic and went to church every Sunday as a kid. I know all about it. The Indian quoted scripture, warning me of the hell which awaited those who didn't accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal savior. The Indian? Yep. I thank God every day for keeping me sober. I thought this might get him to stop proselytizing, and it helped. He defended clear-cutting, which saddened me. Oh, Jesus. At dusk, he dropped me off a few miles north of Wetchpeck. I had dinner, white bread, peanut butter sandwiches, and trail mix. You're funny. The state kept a 12-foot shoulder of grass mowed along the west side of 96. Beyond that shoulder was the wilderness, a towering thicket of fir, willow, and madrone trees. The east side of the 96 contained the same stands of trees and the south fork of the Trinity River. I considered sleeping on the river bottom and then figured that was not smart. Whoever cut the grass along the stretch of highway right there had mowed in and around some large blackberry bushes. It proved an ideal little spot to throw down my sleeping bag. Once I cut away some pricker-covered blackberry branches, I pruned the shrub in darkness using the knife Schwammy gave at the gathering. It took a while to get settled. There were roots and bumps, and I had to shift about in order to feel comfortable on that ground. It took hours to fall asleep. At two in the morning, I was awakened by a roaring cougar. He must have been 20 feet from where I was sleeping. I'd seen cougars walk through the forest before. They're an animal that moves with silence, confidence, and grace. I'd heard the roar of these respectable cats in, on TV, in commercials, and on the Discovery Channel, but never in real life. Every hair on my body stood up. Honestly, I thought, this is the end of my life. I couldn't believe this life would end in this manner, being consumed by a fierce predator. There was nowhere to escape to. Behind me was an impenetrable wall of thorny blackberry shrubs, and I couldn't just get up and walk out onto the 96. Off into the distance, I heard what sounded like a woman being raped and murdered and the cougar roared again. I remember what Dakota said. The cougar is a silent killer. The thing will be on you, killing you, and it'll be too late. You won't even hear it coming. These thoughts occurred to me as I instinctively crouched down with the mag light in one hand and my knife in the other. I was ready to give this cougar a war, but after five minutes, I decided he wasn't interested in me. I was about to fall asleep again when I heard something large coming through the forest towards me. Please be Harley. <clears throat> Could be a bear. Now, no cougar would be snapping branches underfoot that way, I thought. At two in the morning, I was awakened by a roaring cougar. He must have been 20 feet from where I was sleeping. I'd seen cougars walk through the forest before. They're an animal that moves with silence, confidence, and grace. 
I had heard the roar of these respectable cats on TV, in commercials and on the Discovery Channel, but never in real life. Every hair on my body stood up. Honestly, I thought, this is the end of my life. I couldn't believe this life would end in this manner, being consumed by a fierce predator. There was nowhere to escape to. Behind me was an impenetrable wall of thorny blackberry shrubs, and I couldn't just get up and walk out onto the 96. Off into the distance, I heard what sounded like a woman being raped and murdered, and the cougar roared again. I remembered what Dakota said. The cougar is a silent killer. The thing will be on you, killing you, and it'll be too late. You won't even hear it coming. These thoughts occurred to me as I instinctively crouched down with a maglite in one hand and my knife in the other. I was ready to give this cougar a war, but after five minutes, I decided he wasn't interested in me. I was about to fall asleep again when I heard something large coming through the forest towards me. Could be a bear. No cougar would be snapping branches underfoot that way, I thought. Whatever this creature was, it came to the wall of blackberry shrubs and it stopped. I had switched on my flashlight and I was going, hey, and I was barking like a dog. Silence. I had resumed my crouching position, knife and flashlight in hand. This animal let out a noise like when a horse ex exhales through its mouth, causing its lips to flap. The blackberry shrub between us quaked. I picked up my sleeping bag and I grabbed my backpack. I walked out from my sleeping spot and across the road. The cougars roared around me, some down on the river bottom in the direction I walked and others in the forest behind me. I heard more ghastly sounds of women being raped and murdered. Well, it sounded that way. Across the 96, there was a gravel parking lot which ended at a steep earthen mound. I lay in my sleeping bag against this mound and sat on it in a reclining position with my back against the mound of dirt. I wasn't tired anymore. My adrenaline made me nauseous. I'd never been so awake. In the moonlight, I witnessed a cougar bolt down the road. He stopped right where I'd just come out from and disappeared into my former sleeping place. Nope. I'd seen enough. Fuck this, I said. I rolled up my sleeping bag, tied it to my backpack, and hoisted it upon my back. Do you still have a sleeping bag? No. I walked north on 96 all night. An occasional pickup or lumber truck blasted by, and the creature stayed pretty quiet. Near sunrise, I slept a while near a campground. I didn't have my thumb out too long when a lady stopped in a battered Chevy truck to pick me up. She was a resident of Black Bear in the early 80s and told me some good stories of her duration there. I thanked her when I was let off in Orleans. I called my parents and yelled into the answering machine, I'm out of Black Bear. 90% convinced I was leaving. I walked a lot that day. Some elderly man picked me up somewhere in between Orleans and Soames Bar. He was a World War II Marine Corps veteran, a real redneck gentleman, so friendly. We had some stimulating talk for a while. So where are you headed, young man? He asked me. I'm living up at the Black Bear Ranch, which is near Forks of Salmon. He brightened, asking, 
Oh yeah, what kind of a ranching you do up there? This man talked passionately about cattle and horses, ranching jargon. I started to feel nervous. Well, it's not really a ranch, it's more of a hippie commune. The whole atmosphere in the cab changed. Hippies, the gentleman muttered to himself under his breath and he wasn't smiling at me any longer. Johnny ruined it. Yes, I did. We drove about another mile and then he said, you can get out up here. And he abruptly pulled over and I got out. <laughs> I thanked him for the ride, but he stayed quiet and then sped off. Me and my stupid mouth. At Soames Bar, I turned off the 96 and onto the Salmon River Road. You don't even have to put out your thumb there. People just pull over and they offer you a ride. I stopped at the Forks Post Office. A letter had arrived from my sister who just gave birth to a baby boy. She named him Cullen. Here's another reason for me to return to Philly, I thought. The last ride I received dropped me at the foot of the Black Bear Trail. I'd barely slept the night before and I walked a lot that day. That five mile hike up the trail was grueling. What a miracle I made it. I stopped sporadically for rests and I just wanted to sleep there on the trail for the night. I never thought I would make it back to the bear when I saw the few long ago discarded trail parts which signal the edge of the junkyard. They call it a resource yard, but not me. The trail widened into the driveway and Dan's glass-blowing friends had their school bus sitting there. I walked around to the back door and there were hippies inside blowing glass. We chatted a while. They asked, when's Dan getting back? I said, I'm not too sure. He's going down to LA to talk to his girlfriend, then going to Tahoe. Who knows? It was nearly dark and I was in the kitchen eating when Troll came in. He'd just come back from the outside world too. Did you make any dinner? He asked. No, man, I just got back from Arcata. I've been walking all day. Troll grew furious, screaming, Anytime you came down the trail, I had a hot dinner waiting for you. Did he? Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Do you remember? He was always good about making food okay. and everything. Okay. Yeah, dude. I tried apologizing, but he didn't care. Dakota, Hannah, and I talked about our futures at the ranch. They wanted to know how the trip down to Arcata went. I talked about the roaring cougars. I swear I heard a woman being raped and murdered. Dakota replied, that's the sound of the female cougar in heat. I told the two of them about the Christian Indian and his preaching. He supports clear cutting, I protested. The Hopi prophecy has come true, Dakota Hopi, said. that's it, Hopi. Yeah, what's that again? I asked of this at the gathering, or I heard about this at the gathering. The last great Hopi warrior while dying after a battle had a vision of a time when the brown man would act like the white man and the white man would act like the brown man. Hannah and Dakota were going up to Washington. A friend of Dakota's had planned a community there and was going to pay Dakota to help him build it. They enjoyed commune living, but they wanted to be somewhere with other couples who had children like them. The three of us didn't want to be so isolated from Babylon anymore. We were nearly broke. Dakota told me, you have to be absolutely prepared to spend the winter here. 
people have been snowed in here for months. You have to have a protein source to survive. If you can't hunt, then you'd better be able to stock this place with enough meat for the winter. I've never hunted and I have almost no money. I said this to Dakota and he pointed up on the walls of the main house <clears throat> dining room. You need snowshoes to hike out of here in the winter. And once you get to the road, nobody's gonna be on it to pick you up, he said. Nobody chopped much wood this summer, so that's another thing to consider. Do you wanna be out there in the freezing rain and snow looking for wood to cut, Dakota asked. The rumor of the Black Bear Salmon River community was that Washington Dan planned on returning to the bear when Hannah and Dakota left. I don't wanna live here with him, I said. Hannah and Dakota both laughed and nodded in agreement. I told them about how Troll flipped out about not having a hot dinner waiting for him. You want to spend the winter here with Troll even if he plans on staying here? Hannah asked me. Troll can be difficult to live with and you could get stuck with him and Dan all winter, Dakota said while grinning. Hell no, I said, and we all laughed. The three of us discussed ways of generating income in order to stay there to no avail. Earlier in the summer, I'd ask my dad to sell my Jeep and put the money in my account. No, he wouldn't do that. Hannah's parents were well-to-do and religious. Do you think maybe I could paint or draw them a religious picture? Maybe the Virgin Mary or something? Hannah and Dakota laughed. They wouldn't want to help us, Hannah said. Dakota told me about Alphabet Farms in Mapleton near Eugene. It's a community with all the modern conveniences. They do organic farming and run a little store where you could work. The woman who runs it is originally from Philadelphia. <clears throat> She'd love you, he said, and Hannah and Dakota laughed. We had an early Thanksgiving dinner. Up at the gatehouse where Hannah and Dakota stayed were some turkeys. Dakota planned on slaughtering one and letting the rest go free. Dakota slaughtered and was cleaning the bird with assistance from Harley. He upset Dakota by ripping the feathers out. Dakota was emotional over this bird, and he wanted to clean the bird in a respectful manner. I got a drunk just ripping the feathers out, Dakota said. We had mashed potatoes. The spuds came right from the garden. The turkey cooked all day in the outdoor cob oven. I'll never have turkey that delicious again. I discussed leaving the bear with Harley. I don't want to stay here anymore, Harley. I warned him about Monkey. I'm probably going to take the train back home. His eyes lit up and he said, I'm gonna teach you to ride the rails, Johnny. Harley was about to launch into some lesson and I said, no, no, I'm gonna buy a ticket. Harley looked at me with a furrowed brow and a crinkled nose and asked, now why would you wanna go and do that when you could ride for free? Ride for free, baby. He talked about going back home to see his family a number of times. Harley's sister had a baby and he missed his mom. I encouraged Harley to go east saying, I'm sure your family would want to see you. I encouraged Harley to go east and he wanted to go with me. But I had grown tired of traveling with him. His alcoholic drinking was painful to witness. I didn't have the nerve to tell him that I wanted to travel alone or that he was annoying me. A few days before Hannah, Dakota, their kids, and I left the bear, a number 
A visitor of ours made a trip down to San Francisco for a street festival, and Harley went along. I didn't want to wait until Thanksgiving for a ride out of Black Bear. Harley was gone, and I saw the perfect chance to leave. I loaded up my backpack. My bright orange East German firefighter suit and matching side bag, which I'd purchased in a thrift shop in Arcata, came along. I'd envisioned working or traveling in the rain, so I wanted to be prepared. I tore all the drawing paper out of my sketchbooks and I fit into a custom section of PVC pipe that I found in a barn. I left my djembe, easel, hooks, and a few CDs at the ranch. Ferrandino left some stuff at the bear. He wanted me to keep it there for him until later. He and Schwam showed up a few weeks prior for a brief visit. I told Brian about all my hitching around and he said, I'm proud of you, Johnny. I couldn't carry his stuff with me and I left it on the main house second floor. Apparently there's a quote black bear tradition of folks abandoning their belongings there. I swept out my cabin. Oops, I meant the crow's nest. I left a note thumbtacked on the door. It said open. I wanted to drive, I, I, I'm sorry, I walked the drive up to the gatehouse excited to leave the remote. I helped Hannah and Dakota pack up their Jeep Cherokee. Dakota set the turkeys free, commenting, the cougars will eat them. The plan was to drop me off on the outskirts of Bend, Oregon, explaining I could hitch to Mapleton along the 126. Dakota drove and I read a star from a Starhawk novel, which was a mixture of sci-fi and fantasy. It was night when we reached Bend and Dakota let me out on a side street near a large park. They both got out with me and we hugged goodbye. Dakota thanked me for reading during the drive and gave me advice similar to what Dan gave me. Stay off the road, don't hitchhike at night. Keep hidden when you're sleeping, somebody could beat you up as you lay there. We said our good lucks and goodbyes and then we were gone. I entered the park and I found some nice tall grass and litter to lie in. There was a condo complex 30 feet away and the lights and noise guaranteed that I wouldn't sleep there. I moved further into the park, a large grassy area with scattered groups of evergreens. I hid myself in some trees and I couldn't sleep because I was cold. I layered up just like at the rainbow gathering. I threw on all of my shirts, two pairs of jeans, my East German firefighter suit and my red rain, rain jacket on top of everything. I still shivered. In the distance, a couple argued. I wondered when their neighbors would call the police, and I expected to hear gunshots. Somebody was shifting about amongst the trees nearby. Maybe he was going to sleep on the ground there like I planned. Perhaps he wanted to rob me. I got up off the ground and I put my backpack on. I draped my empty, bright orange side bag strapped from my right shoulder. I slung my PVC paper carrier across from me, my left shoulder, and I headed west. The sign on the 20 read Sisters, 18 miles away. I didn't walk too far when I had to stop and remove some layers. My heavy plastic fire suit came off along with my rain jacket. I admired the stars as I walked along the desert highway. The only traffic was the occasional truck doing 100 miles an hour. I grew tired, my feet hurt, and I needed to sleep. I would lay down on the desert floor to rest and after 10 minutes I'd be too cold. Those 18 miles to sisters was torture. I desperately wanted to sleep but I couldn't due to the low temperature. 
The small scattered holes in the desert floor made me think of rattlesnakes and scorpions, and they too motivated me to keep walking. I collapsed every few miles or so. The 60 pounds of clothes I hold became heavier with every mile. My feet, back, and shoulders were sore. I shifted my fire suit bag from shoulder to shoulder. My legs couldn't take the trek, so I headed west. Or kept heading west. The sun was rising behind me and the road had regular traffic now. I walked on autopilot with my thumb out, arm at my side. I didn't have any strength to hold out my arm. Keep going, Johnny. I am. Okay, so Hispanic man pulls me up. I fall into his little two-door Toyota. I could see he worked at a kitchen because of his clothing. He didn't speak English, and I said, Muchos gracias, senor. He just smiled, nodded his head when I said, sisters. He only drove me a mile or two and let me out in the touristy downtown. With my last few dollars, I bought breakfast at this cafe, a coffee and egg sandwich. I hadn't called my parents in a while. My father was so relieved to hear from me. The last time I called Berwyn when I was en route from Arcata to the ranch, I screamed into the answering machine, I'm out of Black Bear. I told him how I was now out of Black Bear and headed to Mapleton to investigate another commune. John, why don't you just come home? My dad sounded so strained. There was a long pause on the payphone as I considered this and looked to the mountains in the south. All right, but you have to go and deposit some cash into my account since I'm broke. My dad agreed to do this after we got off the phone. I found out where to get a bus. There was a small one which regularly left Sisters for Bend, and I rode it back on the same route that I trekked all night. All night. Oh, God. All fucking night. All the way back to Bend. To an area with razor-wired auto lots and porn shops. I got a hotel room and I slept intermittently due to arguments and police sirens. Thank God for sleep. The next day, I caught another shuttle bus from a Venn gas station. There were some nice people on the bus with me, and most memorable was a southern lady from Mississippi. She was in her 50s, had Pocahontas braids, and resembled Donna from Cornelius. I learned how the homes in the deep south become infested with viper snakes, and all the homeowner can do is burn the place to the ground. Cockroaches. She told me how they, quote, get in the couch, and when you're watching the TV, you can feel them move in the couch, ah! rubbing against your back. Stop talking. Oh, God. All right, I got to turn this off. No, no, I mean, keep going. No, I'm good. The snakes infest the place, the walls, the furniture, and the floorboards. I had Illuminati fever that summer, and I told this man on the shuttle bus and the woman sitting next to him about the eventual coming of the New World Order. The dark-haired man on the bus thoroughly cast aside what I had to say. The lady sitting across for him, from him was that World War II generation, born and raised in eastern Oregon. She asked, do you really believe that? When you're mostly isolated for months reading Adbusters magazine, Starhawk novels, and listening to Spearhead while discussing concentration camps appearing across the U.S., you could imagine how it's plausible. Well, our government is doing some sinister things, I told her. The elderly woman on the bus told us about growing up in an Oregon desert town. The bus went northeast on 20 through the emptiness of the high desert, docile hills of golden grass. The towns were spaced out and they had an abundance of old trucks. The lady from Mississippi talked about her family from Tupelo and mentioned, 
Elvis was from Tupelo. This woman's el relatives knew Elvis. The bus drops us off at the 7-Eleven where the 20-26 joins Interstate 84. We were on the Oregon-Idaho state line and there was a Greyhound coming for us. I took the Mississippi woman's bags for her and watched her stuff while she peed. She returned to the front of the store where I sat with her bags and we talked. Some man was walking by us and he heard me say, I'm from Philly, and he said, oh, me too, just to get into our conversation. This guy didn't look trustworthy whatsoever. He offered us a ride after we said, we're taking the Greyhound. He returned to his pickup and I told my new friend, that's the bad guy in those Street Smarts 101 movies from school, remember? The Greyhounds showed up and the crowd piled on. Mount St. Helens was acting up and I thought that she'd erupt and I'd be stuck in Portland's airport. That's one of the reasons I took the bus. The two others are saving money and curiosity. There was a woman and her sons aboard the bus. The mother was a serious Christian. She sang lullabies of devotion to her son. She was on the run from an abusive husband. In the dark, we stopped at a hospital and we picked up crazy drunk bitch. She made friends and exchanged hellos to the woman in the seat behind the one she took. The woman said, you can call me crazy drunk bitch when she introduced herself. She was masculine and had a female lit. The Christian woman asked, could you watch your language? Crazy drunk bitch looked in her direction. It was obvious she didn't like being critiqued on her choice of words. Crazy drunk bitch kept talking to the woman behind her. She was talking too loud for being so far past midnight. Will you watch that language in the presence of children? The Christian woman asked with de desperation. Children or not, she didn't want to hear a crazy drunk bitch pollute the bus with foul words. Several people told crazy drunk bitch, be quiet. Thankfully, they spoke up when they did. Because I thought crazy drunk bitch CBD was going to bust that Christian lady up. The bus rolled all night. We stopped in all these small towns. The driver would have to get out, sign a log in a locked metal box, and then climb on board again. Passengers would sometimes exit the bus or get on, but this was rare. The smokers became enemy with the bus driver. Why can't we get off for a cigarette? This isn't a scheduled stop, he said. I was glad the nicotine fiends didn't mutiny. The bus must have taken the 84 to the 15 to the 70. I was making myself a peanut butter and trail mix sandwich near Salt Lake. These 10 year old boys eyed my oily all natural peanut butter. What's that? They asked. Peanut butter, I replied, and I looked in their eyes. They showed disbelief. That's not peanut butter, the other one said. This is peanut butter. It's all runny because there's no hydrogenated oils in it. I showed them the jar. The wait in Denver wanted me to abandon the bus for a plane. The place was dirty, ugly, and crowded. We had to transfer buses and daydream in the meantime. I stood and paced for hours in the loud. I grew tired of feeling stuck in a bus seat and stopping in these barely there towns. Could I deal with hearing the smokers well for cigarette breaks? Sure, I was going to be able to take fussy and distracted two-year-olds, correct? One crying infant triggered five. There was a family on the Greyhound with a well-behaved little girl. A few times she acted up, her earlobe was twisted, and she behaved again. 
The Greyhound sailed east across Kansas on the 70 at night. Kansas City, Missouri was a two-hour transfer and a wait. The bus station there was freshly renovated. I didn't mind waiting. Someone corped deep into the wood in the back of the men's room door. Smile. Satan loves you. The blonde Christian woman was on the run from the abusive husband and spotted him in the Kansas City bus terminal. She was terrified, refused to leave the bus for fear of being spotted. The police and the Greyhound people got her and the children off the bus and to safety. Some young kid boarded the bus and he complained about the pisser stinking. So he fumigated the whole back with some cheap cologne or body spray. Our new driver in Kansas City said over the loudspeaker, there are plenty of seats for everybody. You only paid for one, so take one. The folks coming onto our bus found too many riders using two seats, one for their bodies and one for the luggage. The bus driver made this announcement. Passengers made room for other travelers and we kept going east. In St. Louis, this woman got on the bus, took the last seat available next to me. She was tall with an ostentatious engagement ring. She came down from Canada for a wedding. Her fiance worked for the Canadian Railroad, yep, and I yep. heard about how they find body parts all along the track, arms and legs. Occasionally, they find a whole body. When the railroad identifies the body and contacts the family, they say keep it. Um, I knew the bus reached Pennsylvania because of the potholes, and I was excited to be back. Our bus was on the turnpike now, and I met a family from Maine. There was a German girl sitting next to me. In the back of the bus, these high school boys argued George Bush versus John Kerry. I couldn't take it anymore. Will you guys stop? Neither of you can vote anyway, so be quiet. The bus stopped between Harrisburg and King of Prussia so many times. I got the hell off the bus in King of Prussia and my dad was waiting for me. He went to shake my hand and he received a hug. Being back at my parents' house was surreal. I ate some food, showered, and then went to bed. Everybody missed me. I went back to my old position at Whole Foods. My parents asked, what do you think happened to Harley? They were almost upset that I didn't bring him with me. Okay. Nobody wanted to hear of my adventures out west. I remembered what Brian told me. Nobody gives a shit about where you've been. For the most part, I found this to be true.